You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. Hey guys, Chris here. Here's a shout out to all our subscribers. You're what keeps one of us.net up and running. And we've got so much coming for you, including more video versions of the reviews and shows, commentaries, and because it seems like a lot of you may not always check the front page, contests all the time for subscribers to win big prizes. Like right now, we've got the complete Twilight Zone on Blu-ray, up to win for one lucky Time Lord or above subscriber. And I'm doing this. I'm extending the contest date till the second week, week of February. More time to enter, more time to win, and new contests will be going live next week. Keep your eye on the front page of oneofus.net for regular new chances for us to say thank you to the subscribers who keep us running. And we're back with Deliberations of Doom, episode five, I think. Right, it's five. Isn't it your job to keep track of it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I just had a big Hop Dottie's burger. I'm, I'm fading as it is. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> energy up, energy up. Yoga exercises. No, not that. I'd die. Um, we are here with the whole gang. I'm Chris. Patience. Philip. Russ. Rob. And we are here to talk about horror and horror-related things. This week, we review the movie freshly out on VOD and some theater somewhere, presumably. It said it got a theatrical release. I don't know where. Not here in Austin. (laughs) The movie Don't Knock Twice. And then we are going to talk about the the horror career of auteur David Cronenberg. And yes... I called him O'Tour. That's right. He wrote, directed, and produced almost every single one of his movies. I think that makes you an O'Tour. You don't have to act in them to be an O'Tour, right? He took no. cameos in a lot, too. He, he did, but not usually his own films as much. That's true. They said, when I was looking at his cameos, they're like, yeah, he's in a lot of his films. There you can see his hands. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a scene in Videodrome where James Woods is wearing the helmet, and you can see his, like, bare chest, and that was actually David Cronenberg. Stuff like that. So he does little, like, you would never know it. So he's directing while he's doing that? I, I think it's yeah, just, like, a little in-joke for himself. Like, <laughs> I gotta do something in here, but I don't want my face on there. Which I think is kind of funny. But guys, let's just get our show started with our review of this movie, Don't Knock Twice. Uh, this is directed by Caradog W. Caradog? That's a name. Caradog W. James. Now, didn't you guys say that you were already familiar with his previous film from 2013, The Machine? Uh, apparently, us and no one else. Yeah. Uh, he made a excellent uh, sci-fi uh, film called The Machine, and um, I highly recommend it. It's almost... It's about... Well, the less you know about it, the better. It has a lot of neat surprises, but it almost plays like a prequel to Blade Runner. It's about (laughs) AI and androids and military, and it's great. And it's got uh, White Canary from Legends of Tomorrow and Arrow, Uh, Katie Lotz. Yeah. Yeah, they are, the two lead performances are are excellent, like far better than you see in a lot of genre films. Um, So I, I thought it was as good as Ex Machina. Which Mm -hmm. I thought, one thing I will say right off the bat about, for me, uh, Don't Knock Twice, I I really think Katie Sackhoff got 
a uh, bum rap or bum deal when it came to post Battlestar Galactica. I don't know if she just says a bad agent, but she was so good on that show. And I actually think she's one of the best things in this movie that she's starring in. I think she does a really good job playing the the mom to a kid, a daughter who just is a little piece of shit, quite frankly. (laughs) But I think it's one of the problems of this film as well is that the film spends so much time in the beginning setting up that this daughter who despises her and wants nothing to do with her but the moment she gets a supernatural entity on her trail she's like mom um, I'm going to come live with you and will you help me giant mansion please like all the things about her hating her I mean it's just out of the movie it's just not even discussed again pretty much was like okay so she had a Katie Sackhoff had her when she was really young and she was kind of a drug addict alcoholic and she couldn't take care of her so she gave her I don't know she gave her up to adoption it was like an orphanage kind of a thing wasn't it or some sort of Uh, boarding School? That was really unclear. Most of the movie, most is, of the movie, yeah, yeah, is unfocused and unclear. There was so but much. She, uh, in the most weirdly specific urban legend ever, she. And her <laughs> <boyfriend>. <laughs> <laughs> there's an old burnout house on the edge of town. They're like, oh yeah, the legend. There's the lady who, who used to live here, and she like abducted this kid and killed him or something and uh, if you knock if you knock on the door twice the first knock wakes her up and the second knock makes her come after you so let's do it this sounds awesome it's, but does anybody actually just knock once yeah you would, on any home in the world you just knock once <laughs> that just, maybe that was the secret way to defeat her you had to go back and just knock once well, and then she'd be like Wait, yes. What do I yes. do? Where do I, I go? It's like, I'm wait. When's the next knock coming? But then the next guy who tries to be smart and knock just once, that guy's screwed. What? <laughs> I think it's the same. We still knocked twice. Uh, yeah. Um, so the the thing, the old witch lady or whatever she is, comes after her. And she uh, kills her friend almost immediately. Geez, there's no seven days rule on this one. It's just like, maybe I'll get you right away. Maybe I'll wait for a month. We'll just see how it goes. We'll play it by ear. <laughs> another, yeah, another big flaw in the movie is, is how inept and how long it takes for the spirit to sort of do anything. It, I don't even get what it's trying to do. Maybe it was yeah, still I mean, digesting it. the same night, but then it hurts. Right. So yeah, it just messes with her. Days. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, just like, like breaks her. a bunch of pottery and blames yeah. her for it's it. Just, or... it. Maybe it was just still digesting it. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> what an <laughs> evil, <laughs> evil spirit. Did you do this? And no, then mom, it I also didn't. messes with Katie Sackhoff. Like, yeah, right? This is her mom, and she's getting too close to the truth. This is probably my biggest problem in the movie is, you're, you're right, it's like oddly specific, and at the same time, super murky and confusing yeah. what the objectives and the rules of the thing are, which I think is like such a big part of any horror movie is, There's these rules. are the rules, I mean, you look at something like The Ring, it's so brilliant, these are the rules, and then the movie, you know, plays with those rules. This one, I didn't understand. And also, it seemed like there was more than one bad guy or more than one witch thing. It was like, they said there's a spirit, there's also like a person, there's like an envoy of the spirit or something. Yeah, yeah, like the human that it has chosen to be its human representative or whatever is the one in charge of like getting souls for it to take into its world. That's more explanation than is in the movie. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. Baba Yaga at one point saying, oh, it's basically like a, a... the real version of Baba Yaga. But then they say, like, no, but not really. Like, you know, not really. Chicken legs yeah, well, she didn't in the movie, but okay. there's a picture of that. You're like, okay, so yeah. no house with chicken legs. Well, I didn't have a chance to watch it, but you explaining it sounded confusing to me. It, it is. That's the, that's the level that you basically experienced the film. And when yeah, you're still, yeah, when you're, that, uh, it, it, I guess it, it, what really bugged me is that it, 
pulls a ring where about halfway through you realize, wow, this is basically just the ring. Or Candyman. It's man just where it's going Bye through Bye the whole, yeah. oh, you're, they're coming for you. It just fucks with you the whole time. And then when it gets to that point where, you know, where they're like, oh, we need to do our research. We need to figure out how to beat this thing. And like, ha we figured it out. The movie goes, that was the worst thing you could have done. And you're like, yeah, okay. Once again, you just flat out point for point ripped off the ring. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. And also they introduced this sort of late third act sort of weird twist to it just to set up this whole little unnecessary thing at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, which was even more confusing. I right. Then, I mean, I, I, they had me up until the, the, that little third act. And I was like, Oh, what? This doesn't even make any sense. Like, it, and I think, like, it also has this domestic drama. I don't know if we emphasize that. Like, the 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 Katie Sackhoff has an, a sort of teenage daughter that she has a really strained relationship with. They hadn't really seen each other. And the girl's now afraid, so she comes to live with her. And it was kind of an interesting setup for the movie. I, I was intrigued by that. I thought the movie looked great. It's there like... Were, it's, there kept wanting to be more stuff I wanted to know about. Like, Katie Sackhoff is an artist, a sculptor, who makes... They keep saying, oh, you make really disturbing, unsettling sculptures. Like, really? Because I haven't seen any of those. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just they look like statues of people with yeah. cloaks on. Where And why does she make really unsettling things if they indeed are as unsettling as they claim. Uh, even though, at one point, she's just, for this woman, she's just doing a thing of her as, like, a Madonna and child of her and her baby. I'm like, well, it doesn't seem like someone you'd hire Super for that unsettling. sort of job. Did, was there <laughs> any scary moments for anybody? Like, uh, there was one where Kay Sekhoff sees an old lady in the house. She sort of hallucinates her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, it was genuinely, I was, oh, okay, is the movie going to be, like, scary? And then nothing else in the movie was really that scary for me. It was, like, giant creatures crawling up behind people. I mean, there, there are some, I think there are some neat ideas in this. They just don't, they just never go anywhere. And even visually, I think there's some neat stuff that happens. I love the design of the, the actual, like, witch-like creature, which is, imagine Samara if she was, like, 170 and was really long, thin limbs. Actually, she looked you know? almost exactly like the, uh, the, the monster in Lights Out. Didn't she? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. Like, that's what I thought. I'm like, is this the same? Are they oh, supposed to that, be? Wow, that's true. They're both this sort of elongated with the crazy and hair. And Mama. Yeah, and Mama, too. They kind yeah. of look like that. Yeah, yeah that, that whole thing is, is definitely becoming a little too common of a... Of a thing, but I mean, when they do show her, I kind of she's got this weird sort of limbs cracking with her, her kind of twisted the wrong way, scuttling across the floor thing that is kind of unsettling. What about uh, the uh, uh, now? Did everybody else find the movie just dragged like by like halfway through? Because oh, yeah. I'm just trying to think like if, if I'm the only one who was I was I was completely out almost halfway through the movie. Yeah, like I, mean, I was I found it to kind of be a chore. You're, well, part of the problem is you just this daughter is like the worst character. Yeah, she's really super annoying. Yeah, and, and very superficial. <laughs> um, and I actually and at one point she runs away from her mom trying to help yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah she's just so. She's really irritating, and Katie Sackhoff, who seems like someone we want to know more about, she seems like an interesting woman, what little we do know is all stuff that relates to, yeah, I used to be an alcoholic and a drug addict, but that's about it. I'm like, I kind of want to know more about how did you get married to the super rich banker guy that you're with, who seems like a decent enough fellow who can afford this ridiculously huge mansion that so, y'all live in. You guys didn't watch it past the credits, though. They're actually all just playing existence. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get to Foreshadowing. <laughs> oh, I wish tough. that had 
been the movie. <laughs> I wish that that had been the movie. That was a really good second. Uh, I thought so, too. Yeah. <laughs> is there, yeah. And on that note... Death to the demon Philip. <laughs> is, is there anything to recommend about Don't Like Twice? I had a great atmosphere. Yeah, it looks... Yeah. Decent atmosphere. There's some, good some cool little jump scares stuff. with the ghost lady. But, there's some good ones. But there's not much we haven't seen before. It just doesn't have enough on its own to really earn being a, a movie worth seeking out. Yeah. And boy, what like, once again, what a stupid urban legend premise. You're like... Where did y'all were y'all drunk and just it's like just, going through the lists of? It was very contrived. It's like, yeah. super. Likes these movies. I don't. That's what Kara I was Dog say. W. James. No, wrote I was going to say actually, you like the machine. He wrote that. I know. No, he didn't write this. Two other guys wrote this one. So I feel like it was a director for hire job, Mark, and he did his best kind yeah. of thing, trying to throw a lifeline I mean, out there. Is this is the studio out. trying to lose some money or something. Eh, just trying to make a board movie, make a buck. It looks like. Yeah, it looks like by two guys who primarily write for TV. So. Yeah, they do stuff like Thomas and Friends. And Danger Mouse. Mouse. Yeah, and Thunderbirds are Go. <laughs> and Scream Street? How you know, it, a show called Scream that Street? makes a lot of sense. Like, it has about the level of a child's Boy, TV show. Boy, these guys show. wrote a shit ton of Thomas and Friends. Holy crap, look at that. <laughs> That's just their... Certainly qualified to... write a horror film. I don't know what Thomas and Friends is. Should I know what that I is? I don't either. Isn't that the one... That's not Thomas the Tank Engine. Is that a spin-off of Thomas the Tank Engine? I would know. Do Tank Engines have friends, though? I would, well, in this particular universe, they do. But, I mean, <laughs> Thomas the Tank Engine had George Carlin as one of the main actors oh, in it, so, okay. you know. Yeah, he's got a good friend. Yeah? <laughs> Doesn't right. make the movie better. Let's move on to the thing that's the bulk of our discussion. The re- raison d'etre, David Cronenberg... Certainly one of the most interesting filmmakers uh, alive, period, or maybe ever. <laughs> he, I would say that his films, as he always said he, they wanted to, completely stand alone, almost a genre in and of themselves. And that he more or less invented what we call body horror now. Horror, yeah. yeah. And, and it, when, you, when you listen to him talking about it, he says all that comes from a fear of death. It's like all his movies are actually about a fear of death. Which I didn't totally get, but I think he means on a very personal level. And they all seem to be about disease, but that disease isn't necessarily the bad, isn't necessarily bad. Like he talking about um, uh, Shivers, his first film, he was like, I looked at the infected people as the heroes. Like the people who were the, the you know, that, that was good. They should be like that. And the people who weren't infected were the bad guys. We're like... Okay. <laughs> a lot of his stuff is about transfiguration in yeah. one way or the other. I mean, even now, the movies he does now, in a much more abstract sense, are I just don't care for most of the stuff he does now. But let's just get started by talking about his actual movies. And the first one that he... that The first feature film that he made, which is uh, for not talking about his first two very abstract movies, Stereo or Crimes of the Future was Shivers, or The Parasite Murders, or They Came From Within. (laughs) It was multiple different titles. Shivers, in fact, was a sort of desperation move from the distributor in America of, like, we don't know what's going to sell this here. Mm. I think they should have gone with They Came From Within. That's a great name. It is a great name. And even Cronenberg has said as much. Like, I really wish we had stuck with that. We feel like this would have done a lot better if we had had that name. Uh, Interestingly enough, produced by a a partner of Cronenberg's for the first several films he made, Ivan Reitman, who, of course, went on to make any number of really big American movies himself. Those crazy Canadians. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh, those Canadians. So so who wants to take on the the plot synopsis of this one, describing what this movie's about? Um, 
I, I give it to you, sir. Like, I want to do it. Take it. <laughs> Take it away. I mean, yeah. Uh, it, tell us about your sex fantasies. Well, <laughs> back in 1975, when I was still on board, um, you really get a sense of where the world was at that time and how, you know, VD at that time was, you know, a big topic of what was going on in the world. And uh, I, believe, I saw an interview with him talking about uh, he had a dream about seeing a spider coming out of somebody's mouth. Mm-hmm. He goes, I want to write a movie about that, but how the hell do you make a spider move on no budget? So he, instead he made this you know, slug-like creature thing that, you know, uh, in essence, it infects people with, uh, you know, kind of like a uh, virus that makes them both really horny and very angry. And so they're not sure if they want to stab you with their knife or a dick, and you're not sure what's happening, and it gets very vulgar and violent, but it was also the type of film that uh, really brought sensationalism to the big screen. And uh, this movie really opened the door for things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre to have legs, because no one was really doing this yet when he made this movie. And uh, it went to theaters, and it caused a big, big stir in Canada because the government paid for it. Yeah. Through, like, the uh, CDF or whatever, they paid for it. And people were like, our tax dollars went to make this, you know, pornographic, uh, lewd movie. And there was that one guy, Critic, who had actually was a huge supporter of Cronenberg from his art films, mm-hmm. turned on him after he Under gave him a suit and power. Yeah, and wrote this piece that was designed not just to attack the movie, but to attack the Canadian film industry yes. for saying, this is what your tax dollars are doing because the wrong guy's running it. It's making horror porn. Right. <laughs> and what he turned it on his ear was he goes, it made $5 million. No other movie from Canada that the government ever produced ever made a freaking penny. Yeah, it costs like a hundred grand. Yeah. So it made $5 million, which in 1975 is probably equal to like 30, 40 million dollars today. It made a ton of money. And, uh, you know, it caused some controversy and like, it, it was just, it was a cool start to a career. If you watch his interviews back in the days, you, you hear him talking and, uh, they're trying to discredit him and, uh, you'll hear interviewers say like, Oh, like you think you're going to be like what Ingmar Bergman is to Sweden? He goes, yeah, someday I do. And look who, look how he is now. He yeah, is. David Cronenberg is Toronto. He is Canada. And it's kind of cool that he, he was like, you know, uh, Coppola made, you know, small horror movies too when he started out. And there you go. Cronenberg, uh, first movie, uh. Yeah, he even in interviews early on, there's an interview specifically he did when Shivers came out, where they were like talking to him like that, like being very dismissive of your hard director. He's like, Francis Ford Coppola's first movie was Dementia 13. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what does he go? Looks like you're trying to make a quick buck. He goes, it took me five years to make this movie and I made nine grand a year. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck you, buddy. Yeah. A quick buck. So yeah. I like Cronenberg, man. He was always just a very, uh, very strong opinion, even when he was a young man and uh, always you know did what he wanted. I, I, I feel like another that. alternate title of this would be Attack of the Sex Zombies. <laughs> Die Hard Meat Slither. Die yeah. Hard Meat Neither one of those movies had happened yet, though. So I that might have been a hard sell. Yeah, but Die Hard, I actually thought that um, this, it, the whole entire time I was watching Shivers, I had never seen it before. I could not get J.G. Ballard's High Rise out of my head. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was like maybe a. An, oh, an homage is it to yeah. to high rise because it just I was like this could be high rise but with zombie parasite and, and sex and I thought even that's pretty likely the, that he'd read that book yeah and even I think it, it came well, out the same year I mean yeah. we know he's a JJ Ballard fan and he later on <laughs> made, uh, adaptation of his books yeah. uh, even the movie High Rise that came out recently there were whole sequences in that that I'm like wow this shivers that they took that right from shivers. Mm-hmm. There's like the guys who made that clearly watched this movie. It's definitely a lot about that, that, that cold, sterile suburban, everything planned, everything inclusive life being destroyed by the freedom of people 
being unafraid to act on their impulses by fucking everyone else in sight and yeah. then killing them if you they know don't like something it. else I learned too that bras weren't invented until 1976 what yeah I mean when you watch 75 so nobody's wearing their bras <laughs> 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 nobody nobody, nobody had a bra on I think that was just endemic to the late 60s 70s feminism thing just the way I Canadians grew. did things yeah, yeah no, believe me no it lasted until 10 years later when they were all like wow I could tie my breasts around my waist now <laughs> uh, Barbara Steele is, plays a role in this which was uh, the one probably recognizable star from uh, that was in this thing who was a scream queen, queen in her, of herself b- oh, best known for being in the lead witch in Mario Bava's Black Sunday in 1960 but oh, she that's right. very iconic beauty herself uh, yeah this is strange, strangely like a lot more graphic than anything else that he did in a lot of ways. It's mm-hmm. it's certainly in some ways a more straightforward horror movie. It's gory as hell at points. It has some real disturbing stuff. And the, the effect of having the parasite underneath the guy's stomach at one point was so well done that apparently even, uh, uh, what was his name, uh, Dick uh, Dick Smith went to him and said, how did you do that? It was really, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering that too. And actually that's one of my favorite lines in the movie when the guy has the things moving and, she, and he's like with his mistress or whatever. She's like, let me see those sexy lumps. And I was just like, uh, what? <laughs> that's so creepy. Sexy lady lumps. It's just one of many weird things in the movie. All right, so let's move on to his next film, which he had a a good degree of difficulty getting off the ground after all the controversy (laughs) from Scanners, and that is Rabid. Once again, working with Ivan Reitman as a producer, and one of you guys take the lead on this one. Patience, you want to do this one? Um, So there's this... uh, Chick and her boyfriend, and they get in a really bad car accident, and he's fine even though he was driving the, the motorcycle, wasn't a motorcycle <laughs> Yeah, he's accident. all but untied. Yeah, and then, but she's in a coma, and so they do a skin graft on her, which gives her um, armpit penis, is what I like to call it. It's, <laughs> yes, it's as accurate as anything else. In the <clears throat> I mean, it's, and then she goes around and um, sucks people, dude, she picks up dudes, and sucks their blood and turns them into zombies. That with her armpit penis. Does it, in fact, explain and it. And starts a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I always said like his first film is like venereal zombie film and this one is a venereal vampire film. Yeah. yeah. You know, even though like they're they 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 when they get turned they act more like zombies certainly, but you know, I mean the source of it, I mean it's the blood drinker weird he loves things about weird little puckered openings in people's I don't know. bodies. Yeah, I think that a lot. To, yeah. yeah <laughs> when you watch all these like two really close to each other, you it's very obvious. I watched them back to back and the thing that I thought uh, that characterizes the first two is if, other than like the whole sexual liberation and, and that whole metaphor going on, but he really portrays creepy perverts so well. Like, I was just like, <laughs> oh my god. Well, <laughs> he has that guy with the comb over in like, Dude, everything. In the, movie, <laughs> the guy with the comb over in the movie theater, I, know his I name was is, like, this great. is That's Robert A. Disturbing. Silverman. He's in almost every Cronenberg He's film. amazing. He's, he's got that really all. weird voice and he talks all... Yeah, he's yeah. great. He's yeah. great. I actually really like him, too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yes, he's back. Although my favorite with him is still in Existence. Just oh, yeah. the whole, as a video game character who's yeah. <laughs> he's, he's in a loop um, yeah I, and one of the most things that certainly gave this movie a lot of traction was then one of the biggest porn stars in the world Marilyn Chambers who yeah. was behind the green door had you know 
Ivan Reitman had heard that she wanted to go legit. And in fact, she had tried a couple times to be in films with bigger directors that they just always had fallen through for one reason or another. But uh, Cronenberg really wanted to cast Sissy Spacek, who at that mm. point was only been in Badlands, as she was not a marquee star. And they were, every, the studio mm. was like, she's got a heavy accent. It's not going to work here. We don't really like that. We don't really think she's that attractive. Uh, big oh, moment when, in the middle of production, Carrie came out and was yeah. a monster success across the world, and she became an instant international star instantly. <laughs> Oops. Whereas Marilyn Chambers, surprisingly, is not a bad actress. Yes. No, she Decent. did really well. Uh, yeah. yeah she's beautiful. She, well, she, yeah, she was gorgeous. You know, she was the original Ivory Snow Baby. That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you know right. the Carrie poster was on the movie theater when she goes into yeah. the yeah. 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 That's kind of yeah. fun. Yeah. the Carrie poster yeah. was there. I saw that, too. Kind of cool little... But, yeah, it's so startling to me that she was as good as she was and even got good, ret- like, like critics commenting specifically, wow, I really did not think that this porn star would be such a good actress. And she really didn't do anything else straightforward for like 20 years after this. She went right back to porn. Yeah. I was really shocked. Like, wow, okay. I guess that's where the money was. I can't imagine this paid very much. Probably not. You know. This one had some weird moments in it for me where it felt like, it felt like obviously very similar to Shivers, just with more money and better sound quality. Yes, totally. Um, yeah. Because, like, I mean, everything in Shivers sounded like they were talking in, you know, a, a hallway with like really hard walls. And yeah. Like, what did he? Okay, whatever. But there was moments that like, like the police officer, the guy's like, I'm looking for my girl. Have you seen? He goes, yeah, there's a girl downstairs. Yeah, like... Would you not tell the man looking for his girl that the person you're about to show him is a dead woman in a freezer? Like, <laughs> surprise, motherfucker. Is this, is this her? No? There was weird moments yeah, that there, I was like... Yeah, there's a girl. Like, here's a girl. My, no, not your girl? Thank God, because she's dead in a freezer. My favorite part is when they're in the mall and, the like, the zombie, like, thing breaks out and this cop takes, a, like, a machine gun yeah. and just opens fire. Highly unskilled kids. with the weapon. I yeah. kill Santa. I mean, it was... I was laughing. Like, I was like, is this supposed to be funny because this is fucking hilarious yeah i mean it's it definitely has that it evolves into that same way that any sort of big zombie apocalypse movie is funny yeah. you know where you're like okay this is less horrifying and more just fun to watch which which one of the two did you guys like better did you like shivers or rabbit better? I would say shivers. i'd say shivers too. i like shivers better okay i thought that as well yeah agreed and uh, although rabbit i think i was surprised at how polished the movie was it really was kind of a leap from in in scope and filmmaking from uh, Shivers, I didn't I did not expect it to go to this. I'd never seen it before. I didn't know it was going to go to like a much larger sort of zombie apocalypse uh, level, which I was pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, uh, it's definitely slicker. It's definitely ending. higher. Yeah, better that's the most produced, interesting. But. There's something just so raw and nasty and fun about Shivers. He, he, it definitely still had kind of has that exploitation thing that Shivers feels like. I think I was the only thing I think I was sort of surprised by was I, I got to give Cronenberg credit. He, he usually really thinks about these uh, the sort of mutations and diseases and and gives you very sort of intense biological explanations. And in this one. Other than the skin graft, there yeah. seemed to be no explanation of how this happened or where Why? it came yeah, from. It's very yeah. – yeah, a lot was made of that of people yeah. saying, so what was the deal with that? Didn't that they say something like this piece of skin from the thigh doesn't – heals yeah. in a different way as opposed to other skin? Yeah. But, yeah. but why it would create a, a, not only an armpit – 
penis, but but a virus that comes out of it that yeah. turns people. Yeah. It, it doesn't never bothers to explain to it. I think that. That yeah. it implies <laughs> that it, he took like a like something around the vagina and put it in her. I don't know. Let alone she was burned underneath a motorcycle, and all she got his king grab on was her arm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she was underneath a it's a life saving procedure. <laughs> she should have had vampire penises all over her body, <laughs> oh, <laughs> but that may have been too expensive to do. So it's just in the arm. I mean, all, all in all, in the Cronenberg scale, this is definitely on my lower of like what I hold him for the horror. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think if anything, just because it takes so long to get where it's going. It yeah, it's true, and it's a little repetitive. And a very TV mm-hmm. show style score because yet he didn't have Howard Shore yet. Yes, which yeah. brings us to his next film, Howard's- The Brood, which was Fuck the, yes, the first movie <laughs> uh, that Howard Shore. Uh, uh, became his composer for who later went on to win Oscars for multiple films including Lord of the Lord of the Rings movies um, and he went on to do every single Cronenberg score ever since except for Dead the Zone. Fl- uh, Dead Zone yes only one he did not do the score for but they're apparently good buddies and this was in fact Howard Shore's major film debut he'd only done like a really tiny little low budget movie before that this mm-hmm. so uh, big deal for him uh, and the brood I would say is kind of the first fully realized Cronenberg film where he's like not still assembling the pieces of what kind of director he wants to be. This is the first time we are full on inside this man's head and it feels more like a finished movie. Yeah. Uh, but what do, you, what do you guys give the, the, the plot synopsis? For uh, the Brood is a domestic drama <laughs> is that with what it is? yes it is it's a uh, domestic drama with uh killer little people that have beaks uh as all domestic dramas generally devolve into yeah that's um, and that sounds like something you're interested yeah, in yeah um basically it's about a uh, it starts kind of in the middle of this um man and his wife is now part of a uh, is it a cult? Is it a, a healing facility? Or I think it's supposed to be like psychotherapy. Yeah, like a ther- like a therapeutic. I forget what they call yeah. it. Psychoplasmics. Psychoplasmics, right? So um, she's been in there, and he sort of doesn't have access to her anymore. And he has a kid, and uh, weird. St- their their relationship is super strained. It's obviously weird stuff is going on with her, and um, slowly they they begin to believe that uh, something weird is going on. I, I don't. I don't, I don't know how much I guess that I already these get. These little people are yeah, attacking these, people that yeah, she has problems. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and they can walk really far. Shit goes sideways from there and hilarity ensues. Um, <laughs> if by hilarity you mean people growing little mutated yeah, things out of it was like interesting. sacks that come um, out of their I had not seen it before. It really builds to that in the end so the I didn't really I didn't really know that I thought I guess I'm used to more modern movies so it was interesting to me like I think in a more modern film you would have revealed where the little people were coming from a lot sooner mm-hmm. and here it builds to that as sort of a climax as to where yeah, they're coming really from you don't know what's, what's yeah. going on until like the last 15 minutes uh, like, also oh, I oh. think this film <laughs> continues in the Cronenberg tradition and I, I was going to just mention this throughout um, of especially with Scanners Really, sort of milk toasty, bland uh, lead guys. Like Shivers, main guy makes almost no impression. Uh, Marilyn Chambers' boyfriend makes is just like a, a, a man. Really. Uh, this the guy in the brood. Uh, he's sort of just they're sort of generic, and even and especially the guy in Scanners, which I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they're all sort of these. But they I, have nice eyes. And yeah, but Russ goes. Russ said, <laughs> "I guess they're all. It's a real. It must be a Canadian thing. Like they're they're just all sort of nice guys." 
Uh, they aren't very charismatic leads. I don't know if anybody else noticed that really sort of throughout idea. his movies. And he slowly, I think when he gets like Walken and, and Woods and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But even jumping ahead like Jude Law, he's a little, he's a little sort of quiet, and sort of nerdy. Although we saw the sort of alternative scientists as characters in the first two films mm-hmm. that end up from here on being a major theme with all yeah, his like movies. That's right. really much this the is theme. the first one in which that character becomes one of the primary characters here, Oliver Reed. The, Amazing performance, too. Yeah, Amazing really great. Playing the, a, the, the yeah. head of the institute that, that's doing these psychoplasmics, which as we know, uh, it turns, it creates dwarf people for the tall man, I guess? I can't imagine. There isn't, right? <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I remember okay, Russ pointed out he does have a, an excellent. It, who's it? It's the guy. It's, it's the, Frank, isn't it? Frank Gorshin, who's the uh, the coroner, uh, who ex- gives the amazing explanation of what these tiny, or tiny like creature killer creatures are, and it's so well thought out. I, I just that it's probably one of my favorite things in the movie, and delivered really well by by uh, by the actor. I'm not yeah. sure if that was Gorshin. I don't see his name on the list. It may have been somebody else. Who oh, looks like kind of looks like him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I I had not seen this movie before, and uh, it is uh, it is something else, man. I, as are all of Cronenberg's movies. You're bare, you're really just not prepared. The because... sequence where Samantha Egger is like <clears throat> licking the things coming oh out of her God. body and like cleaning the like blood and mucus off. Cronenberg, like that guy goes there and he stays there. Yeah. Like that's what he does in his movies. I was not really prepared. That's my biggest thing about this movie. All these Cronenberg movies, we had a lot to watch. And I couldn't watch any of them while I ate food. No. Because like, yeah, I really... I can't remember which one you were posting yeah. you were about to watch. Yeah, I guess you've made all this food. food. And we're like, bad call. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, you really... You don't want to eat before or really after you watch any I want to say Brood is probably the only one that really grossed me out, though. Like, that really? was the only one that I was like, ew, of, that's yeah, Of all his movies, the two that the most make me feel... Physically ill at points. This and the fly are the two yeah, yeah, really make yeah, really my gross. stomach fly. turn. In a good, make my t- stomach turn in a good, in a good way. way. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about like this one and Cronenberg in general is his plots are for the most part so ridiculous. I imagine pitching them if you weren't Cronenberg. You get laughed out of so many offices, but he takes it so seriously and, and hires people like like Samantha Edgar and Oliver Reed to like. Give all that, like Oliver Reed has so much exposition and he does it so believably that I'll believe anything that man tells me. So you tell me that you know psychoplasmics is the way to you know unleash anger through your plasma. Well, I, I believe you. Okay, okay. And, and even though like, I had to look up afterwards, is, is there any like you know basis on this? And it's all complete, just you know science fiction that he's making up. But he does it so believably that he can just you know sell you anything because he does it with such a high standard he, and it's great yeah and I think I think researching the backstory he was going through something very similar to this he was having he was divorcing his wife yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, I guess she was under the spell of maybe a therapist so that part of it is pretty affecting I mean I definitely responded to that that part of it he, unlike something like Don't Knock Twice where I feel like you know the domestic stuff. The domestic stuff in here is is generally affecting, and I think he does a really good job with the wife's parents, who yeah. are really interesting characters. That's it, really and you feel a lot of interesting backstory with them. That you know, the, there's some debate. The 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 daughter, his wife, says, "Oh, my mother was cruel and all this stuff." And then when we see her, she doesn't really seem that way. We're not really sure how to take it. But they'd obviously been divorced, <laughs> and the father shows up, and he seems sort of sad that all of this has happened. And mm-hmm. or, you know, all that was great, really interesting. Um, Regarding the real-life divorce, he actually said that, um, Cronenberg said in an interview that um, the part where the guy strangles his wife, 
he's like, that was really satisfying for me. Just because he was like, I want to strangle my wife, so I'm going to film this Uh, and, like, do it. It's it's so amazing that his films are these extreme expressions of, of violence and gore and... And then when you see the guy, he is the exact opposite of that. He is the most calm, yep. measured, intelligent, yeah. cerebral, quiet. Use. Yeah, he's just like this. I mean, I want to listen to that guy like talk in interviews for hours. He's a, he's just yeah, he's just so smart and eloquent, and he makes but he makes these movies that are incredibly visceral and disturbing and weird. I think even Scorsese talked at length about that was so shocking the first time we met him because he was a huge fan of his movies. Like, nobody makes movies like this guy. He must be a totally insane, raving madman. And then he meets him, and he's just like, well, hello. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Like, it was almost creepier that he was, yeah. like, so incredible. He's like, he is like a... Uh, uh, what's his name? Not Christopher Lee, but the other one who's always playing Dracula. Uh, oh, uh, who's playing versus him? Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. He's yeah. like very Peter Cushing's so incredibly reserved that something evil has to be going and, on, and thus used to great effect in Nightbreed as yeah. the uh, yeah. as the serial killer, which is one of my favorite performances ever in a horror. Cronenberg, Cronenberg, who actually appeared in a lot of films, but usually in very small roles. That was the one his one movie, not that he had nothing to do with other than acting it. And it, where he was great, he played yeah. such a good serial Nightbreed killer. Is probably one of my all-time favorite movies, and I watched it again just to uh. be like, oh, just to see his performance again. Yeah, that. he's tremendous. All right, let's move on to 1981 Scanners, and this was sort of coming out at the beginning of the videotape era. So I think for a lot of people, this was their first Cronenberg exposure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember for me, this is the first one I ever saw. And, you know, out, you know, like, whoa, what's that? That's got the dude's head exploding. I'd watch that. <laughs> I, I, I like exploding. Yeah, I think guys. in many ways, this is sort of the sort of Cronenberg movie you think of when yeah. you, when you think of David Cronenberg for, for a casual yeah. viewer from the 80s. Certainly, yeah. it was because uh, it, it was like, yeah, it was definitely your first. Experience to it. it was a lot of people's first exposure to Michael Ironside, who's like become a staple of like B movies over the decades, mm-hmm. and almost died twice. They can't, they can't kill him. <laughs> I think he. Uh, uh, I think it's also a very sellable movie. It, it's it has a it has a kind of a neat plot. Well, except for the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, what's the plot? This. Russ, let me take this one. Uh, how, how do I even? Ex- people's heads explode, and that's all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little more in depth. Uh, I, uh, this, uh, we slowly become aware of a, a, a sort of um, underground race of people or, or group of people that have these intense psychic abilities and uh, are, are seeming to use them for nefarious purposes. And they're at war with each other. Yeah, and they're at war with each other. Yeah. You got your main character who's like just starting to have these abilities. He's an idiot. Stephen Lack. <laughs> <laughs> who's lacking as an actor. <laughs> as well. He's lacking in pretty much everything. Like He's probably one of the worst leads I've ever seen Such in a, a movie. Idiot. He's in two, I want to say. Cronenberg film. He's in another one? Yeah, I'm blanking on what the other one was. Oh. But I know he was for sure. It, he, uh, it, it in, makes no sense why you would cast <laughs> him at all. He Honestly, it's a credit to how amazing a filmmaker Cronenberg is that the movie's so great and his lead character is played by such a boring well, actor. A lot of what balances it out is, A, this is definitely as complicated, if not more complex, of a conspiratorial plot than The Brood was. I mean, now that... You know, his whole thing, the evil scientist. Well, now you've got Patrick McGowan, you know, from The Prisoner playing the he's evil right. scientist type yeah, character. He's one of the best actors in this And movie. he's really yeah. into corporations that have 
conspiratorial things going on led by evil scientists that are trying to remake the world in one way or the other. And that's huge and interesting. And Michael Ironside is sort of like the main, you know, thrusting kill tool of the corporation of their psychics. He's the guy you send after people when they're not obeying (laughs) what they're supposed to be doing. And that everything here, despite you're like, oh, wow, these people have such telekinetic powers, they could kill another person with their minds. I love that it becomes clear that's just the tip of the iceberg for what these scanners are capable of. And kind of the last act of this film is kind of like, yeah, shit's about to go off the hook, (laughs) yo. I'm like, wait, okay, so they're psychic, got it. Wait, they can set people on fire now? And hack computers. I was going to say, and they can now hack computers. Because computers have nervous systems just like you. Wait, what? Which is still more realistic than the hackers, the hacking in the movie Hackers. Or any given episode of CSI. Ludicrous, but somehow Cronenberg makes it all work, and then it's it's like one of his best movies. I I love this movie, and I think I really, I, I think like I said, it has the thriller aspects. There's all these really there's really cool ideas going on. Like I think in the hands of someone else, it would have been a more conventional techno sort of sleek thriller, but he turns it into something else. And another thing um, that I find kind of interesting. Is that this is more? This is his first sci-fi, more sci-fi-ish movie. I think as other movies have elements of sci-fi, yeah, but they have this is science that causes it, but it's not really about the science. And right, the right. Yeah, this and one is full on. This is that. like a this this one. I would I would say it has it's more of sci-fi with horror elements rather than vice versa. Yeah. And um and I think that's kind of the the first one. But I remember one of the things that struck me the first time I saw it was that at a certain point the main character comes in contact with one of the groups. And the guy is an artist who suffers from what he suffers from, these psychic abilities. And the art is amazing. It's like this, this huge, he has, I think he has like this huge half head, you yes. can like step, step foot in. Yes. And it is a credit to Cronenberg that this is the kind of filmmaker and writer that he is. He's thought about it in a three dimensional way. He's thought about culture and art and science about these sort of, like you were saying, like sort of ludicrous concepts, but he's applied those kind of things to him. So I remember just that kind of subculture and and mythology to his movie was so striking. It sort of blew me away. Yeah. Like, I I think that that art thing was really something. I'd say that that was the come over guy again. The come over guy. Was it? Is that come over? Yeah, of course it is. He's so good, though. Yeah, and I... The fact that he lives inside a giant head of himself is just like, what? (laughs) How amazing was that? And if the head is Damn it. (laughs) Like, to to me, like, I love it in premise. I wish it would be two hours longer. Because I felt like it was a lot of story. Really short. Well, you're in luck because they made, like, a billion sequels (laughs) to this. Scanner Cops. Scanner Cops. But, you know, just this in itself. Like, to me, like, it was one of, like, story-wise, it's great, but it was actually one of the weaker ones to me because there's no actual real relationship between the main character and a woman or a relationship. Or, all those other movies had such interesting relationships with characters. This one had none. It was like, at the end, you're like, you're my brother. I'm like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> and then I'm like, I've got to listen to Michael Ironside explain things for five minutes just to, like, why did it have to be a twist? You know, it's one of those things I that I would have liked to know more. Like I said, it brought that up because I wish that they didn't have the twist at the end. It would have been a much better film if if they didn't yeah. have so like, I, that whole little. Yeah, I, I mean, in David Cronenberg movies, the good guy always wins. I would have liked this one not to be <laughs> yeah. that. Interesting. Um, your brundle fly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. but you know, badly. I mean, Jude Davis wins. But uh, the, do you one think of the he, interesting things about this? He actually looks back at this film with not a lot of pleasure because apparently. There was a shakeup going on at the Canadian film industry, and 
by some quirk of the legal setup, you only could have two weeks of post uh, pre-production before you started shooting films. So this was the movie where that was the case. And they were like, just not ready to make this movie at all. So they were literally shooting places on the fly with the production team, just driving around looking for a place they could shoot things. All right, that looks good. I already was writing as you were shooting too. Yeah. Writing Uh like the script wasn't even done yet already. Yeah. Yeah. Fix everything. And yet it came out pretty damn good. I mean, the concept again, like, I mean, it's, and it's sort of shocking there that no one's making a giant, like, expensive reboot of this. Um, it's already been considered. And I've heard they've offered alone. to people, and they said they wouldn't do it unless Cronenberg gave them their blessing, and Cronenberg gives no blessing. Yeah. yeah. Darren Lynn Boozman in 2007 said he was going to remake it by, from the Weinstein Company in Dimension Films. David Goyer yeah, so was writing it. It was supposed to come out in 2008. I see a came and went. Uh, 2013, he said, yeah, I won't make it unless Cronenberg says it's okay. You're, you're better off I'm really just, never just say probably okay. ripping it off and just doing your own version of I, it. I will say as well, uh, the scene, the famous <laughs> scene of the explosion of the, of the scanner's head was kind of represents to me in my head the birth of the GIF meme on the internet because they all used that yeah. image. If you've never seen scanners, you've seen that too. <laughs> it was everywhere. Well, this is actually uh, like definitely a companion film to his next film, which I felt was a more fully realized, even more Cronenbergian version of a similar story, which is Videodrome. I still think this is his masterpiece. Um, I agree. I, despite how... This is one of those movies, if you watch the trailer, read the description, you go, that looks like the dumbest movie ever. <laughs> and it, it totally is not. This was in 1983. He got a big star, James Woods, to come and do this, and then an even bigger star at the time, singer uh, Debbie Harry, yeah. who was already having radio hits at that point from Hell Blondie. Yeah. You know, pretty big pretty big deal. Uh, the idea James Woods plays Max Wren, that's a killer name for a protagonist, <laughs> who is a total fucking sleazebag. He is the president of Civic TV, which is a Toronto UHF TV station that basically does puts out porn and exploitation films and stuff like that. Hard to believe we used to be able to just get that over the air in Canada, huh? <laughs> um, the way we're supposed to be. Yeah, he doesn't really care. He's like, everything is too mild. Everything on here is too mild. It's just not, there's, it's just softcore pornography. This isn't interesting. It's boring. Uh, and he finds through a friend of his, Peter uh, Dvorsky, uh, playing Harlan, who operates their unauthorized satellite dish, They this show he stumbled across called Videodrome, which is no plot. It's just, it looks like it's out of Malaysia and it shows people being tortured and then eventually murdered in this like red clay covered chamber uh, and saying, this is it. This is what we've been looking for. He decides he's going to start broadcasting it. And as it turns out, this all, and not to give away the final, you know, the big twist, but it all ties into a big evil corporation <laughs> <laughs> who are, who are, who've got a, a signal inside of the television signal of this, intentionally designed to basically more or less kill anyone who likes this kind of shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which doesn't We would all be dead. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know about all of us. <laughs> oh, just watch torture and murder with no plot. I mean... Sure, the hostile movies. Yeah. <laughs> as long as there's a plot, right, Chris? Yeah, right. As long as there's a plot, it's acceptable. Uh, and the the good news is that signal makes you hallucinate like crazy and in fact turns you into a killer yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I Some of the visual stuff that's going on here is still some of the most mesmerizing, smartly done, and some of it I don't even know how they did stuff in any movie ever. Yeah. Um, well, he got Baker on this one, right? 
To do all the special effects? I believe so, yeah. Because yes. he was using that guy Blasco for his other two, and then like he switched over. He got, got more money and got the uh, got Baker on this one to do all the uh, the TV effects on it. But yeah, this is definitely his masterpiece. Some of the visuals were just absolutely incredible and still hold up even today, you know, where like the first time him and, and uh, Blondie have sex... And yeah. it's they like it flashes to them having sex in the video drone, and you're just it was such a beautiful moment. You're just like that's breathtaking. It, it makes you wonder if this. I mean, cause I haven't read anything or seen any interviews on this, but it makes you wonder if like what happened with him when he was making like Shivers and having all that backlash of being you know like an exploitive uh, director just making mm-hmm. a cheap buck. If that influenced all the video drone, and this like, one's just downright sadomasochistic. But, but it is yeah exactly. It was like I'm going to profit off of this. I'm going to have a character who profits off this, and if I just get a corporate who's saying that I'm evil. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, there had to have been some relationship between oh, what happened yeah. and then how this got created. He's yeah. definitely working some shit out in his movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No question that this is very therapeutic. Uh, well, at least we think. They might end up, after he dies, find out he's got like a basement with tons of people that are buried right, with like, some, extra like, arms like sewn like onto them and stuff. <laughs> One of my favorite ideas of this movie is how like the public life on TV is, it, it, this is a direct quote, I think, the public life on TV is more real than your, your private life at home. And I just thought that was, like, so incredibly poignant for today's day and age with social media. I would just, like, love to see him do a movie about social media because it's the same idea. Like, people, like, manipulating their lives on, on social media to make it look more like, fun, and look at how much fun I'm having, even though I'm a miserable human being, you know? <laughs> it's kind of the same idea with Videodrome. I, I think he's... Uh, there's definitely a thing that runs through his movies, um, a discussion of, like, technology. And, um, and this one... with technology. Right, and he seems to be very... I mean, when you're watching it now, I mean, we're watching it 30-something years later, but... It, it, it probably of the moment, I mean, video cassettes and home video cassettes and, and, and you know, UHF trends, all these guys, it was pretty cutting edge. And even his take on it now feels cutting edge. It's, it's very modern. He's very much ahead of his time thinking about all that stuff. And I remember being really struck by that watching the movie. Just, you know, that he – and he – I don't – I'm not sure what Cronenberg's feeling about technology is. He, I, I don't know – I mean, obviously, it runs through his movies. He does... I, I can't tell... I don't think he condemns it outright. I don't think he's like a technophobe. I don't even know... I don't even feel like he's condemning it. I feel in some ways he's embracing it and scared of his desire to embrace right. it at the same time. I mean, all these, especially from here on, seem to be about that yep. fusion of like, yes, we have no choice. We are like, coming together, these things. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, it's going to change everything right. and it's going to be frightening. I mean, I think he views probably biology and technology like you said as a, something that's coming together in a way that is you know going to mutate us in some way we're not it's expecting ugly. yeah and yeah. is there yeah it's like what will humanity be the other thing that really struck me in this movie and it's it's a technique as a filmmaker that i love it, it seems to be in all of his movies which is i just remember in this one it really struck me the people automatically just accept what's going on in the movie. So there's this weird transmission, there's people doing this. So I, you never have to have, say, like something like Don't Knock Twice, where I have to sit through like 20 to 30 minutes of them trying to convince people that something weird is happening. How come nobody <laughs> believes me? And you got the skeptical cop, it's like, well, it's just an average explanation. You're the weirdo, you know? And none of that's in there. You know, it's in, in Shivers, he just accepts there's weird parasites. This is what's going on, you know? And same with, you know, this. I remember the, you know, the woman knows what he's talking about. She knows what Videodrome is. She, and he accepts what's going on too this is weird stuff dead zone same thing like people immediately accept 
the weird, the strange, the supernatural. And we just get on with the movie and explore it rather than having to build to it. And, you know, I know what's going on. How come the people in this freaking movie don't know what's going on? I, I, I think that because Cronenberg finds a very realistic way to tie it together. <clears throat> right. Like even in Shivers, he has him say, well, parasites are also useful. You know, right. what if, you know, your kidney's not working? You can have a parasite that can actually filter out whatever, you know, toxins are in your body. Like, and so he finds a way to tie them together. That make you just, you just buy it because he finds a believable way to tie it. Scanners, together. the serum. It's like you, you know, it helps pregnant women. Yeah. Right. As well, this definitely has reflections of stuff you would explore later with Crash, with that sort of yeah. very sadomasochistic uh, of sexuality of change and fusion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that that and then of course the fly as well. Yeah. Has, has similar aspects there too. Uh, I will say I think this is his scariest movie. I really do, and partially that's because the way that the the main character is in James Wood is in pretty much every scene in this film. He is the audience avatar. Wood's and as awesome. It goes by the way. along, yeah, it's really good and he starts becoming more and more not capable of telling what's actually real and what's not. You as the audience are too. There's no reveal. Oh wait, that was just hallucination. Now that wasn't. You also like him are just trying to parse out fuck what's really happening here. You're not sure as an audience, and maybe reality really is mutating. Maybe it's not just hallucinations. Yeah. And I find that really scary. And he does it so effectively. So many haunting moments, like the moment when he's when he realizes Debbie Harry is now in Videodrome and he's watching her get murdered. And you're like, how long ago did that happen? Yeah. Did I ever have sex with her? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. Yeah. We were like, you don't. He doesn't even know if any of that was real. You, and then, of course, the one of my favorite ending most moments of any film ever. The ending of this film is just like, you know, you just sit there for five minutes afterwards and think about what you did watching that movie. I would say the last <laughs> third loses me a little bit. It gets a little abstract, more than probably some of his other movies. But I, I the for the build up and into this movie, the, the you know the setup the. When things start to go off the rails, and then the imagery, especially of like the television, and you know the gun, and the uh, wow, it's it's something else. I, there isn't too many, there aren't too many movies like this. And that that guy uh, Brian Oblivion, if you listen to what he says, what a great it, name. It, it literally, I love it. He goes, he goes, I did not, I was not born with that name. No, but, no shit. But he has uh, some great lines in there where it's like, you know, I'm only seen on TV through a t on a TV, mm-hmm. like, and uh, the TV is the retinas of the soul, or is the yeah. retinas, yeah. and it's it's literally like everything he's saying is the movie. Yeah. And it's pretty, uh, you know, spot on. So, All right. Well, let's move on to The Dead Zone, 1983. Philip, why don't you lead us off on this one? Uh, I haven't seen that one in so long, though. Oh, you didn't get a chance to? I, I, I watched it oh, like, back, you back, back, back in the day. You go ahead. Because my boy, Stephen King. Uh, this is the least Cronenberg of the Cronenbergs, I think. I This one's also probably the most mainstream. Definitely the most mm-hmm. mainstream. Um, so, basically, Johnny, played by Christopher Walken. Yay! Um, yay. <laughs> he gets in a car accident. He's in a coma for <clears> five <throat> years. Comes back. He has psychic abilities when he touches people. Um... This movie's kind of in three acts. I think that's actually mm-hmm. was deliberate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first part of it is him like coming out of the coma, finding his life, and realizing he has this psychic ability. The second part is his him like sort of using it to help others, and then the third part is like the big, oh my god, I'm going to stop the world from apocalypse. Um, a la Martin Sheen. Yeah, who's basically playing Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah who's literally... <laughs> like, a less scary version less of Donald Trump. Trump. Seriously, when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this is really creepy. I think they ran on the same campaign promises. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, no. 
Um, so yeah, that's pretty much the base. If this doesn't have any of the Cronenberg style, it doesn't have any of the Cronenberg weirdness. I feel like this is just like a really straightforward film. It does explore the relationship between you know Johnny and coming back five years later to not having a life and him trying to rebuild himself um, in a way while still dealing with having these powers that he doesn't quite sure what to do with, but. I feel like this is probably, other than an awesome performance by Christopher Walken, um, I think this one's pretty straightforward. And it's the only film of his horror movies that he did not write. It's the only yeah, one. Oh, it's for Jeffrey Bohm. Yeah. yeah, they got Jeffrey Bohm, who is no slouch. That guy's written, that guy's an impressive resume. Yeah, yeah, like a Lethal Weapon 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Lost Boys. He's, he's, he's done some pretty interesting stuff, to be sure. Uh, but, like... I, I do agree. Well, I agree. This is certainly the least Cronenbergian in the middle of a very, the most defining Cronenberg period. Suddenly there's the dead zone, which is like made a, a decent amount of money, got him to a higher level of a capacity for getting money to do what he wanted to do. And uh, was, I think really still one of the better Stephen King. Films. Yeah, it was a great adaption. And also, I mean, you know, sometimes you just got to take a paycheck. Well, uh, I uh, will have to be the voice of dissent that I freaking love this movie and it's probably my favorite Cronenberg movie. Wow. Um, yeah, strong. this is a movie I have watched several times and I just, I find it to be an almost near perfect movie. Now, in, like you guys said, there, I, I do see that it is a, is probably his most conventional uh, Hollywood film, but at the same time, I'm stunned about how much it is a Cronenberg movie, and he put all of this... There's that scene with the scissors is one of oh, the most God. upsetting I things. I mean, like, totally I, every time I... I was a kid catching that on ABC Movie of the Week or whatever, and he sets the scissors up and he starts to bend to it. I, I, I... Even now, like, it just stays... It stays with you. Um, I think... Uh, and that was a. Uh, Who's in a lot of his? Yeah, he's he's in uh, Naked Lunch and Nicholas, um, the Nicholas, Brood. Nicholas Campbell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very very 80s ish actor. Um, but um, the movie is incredibly emotional for me as well, uh, in the way that great sort of Hollywood movies can be. Um, I Walken, and I, I, I again, I'm probably gonna catch guy from this. This is probably the best Walken's ever been in a movie. I mean, he, you can have you have the Walkenist, you know, stuff where he's you know doing his funny ticks and. And his in his great uh, you know uh, way of speaking, but this movie, I wish he gave more performances like this. Well, it is such a sympathetic character that has so many sides to him, and it's rare to see Walken take on a character that isn't either. He's either characters that are a little more cartoonish, bigger mm-hmm. than life, or characters that are just kind of like really just they're punching at one thing. You know, they're like either a villain or what have you, or they got an uncomfortable hunk of metal up their ass or something. <laughs> this one is really nuanced. He's a very he's a very average person, which I think is really important to the movie and. There is this thing where he's waking up from a coma, uh, you know, and he's lost part of his life. And he and I think it's a movie that's about glimpsing the future, but he also glimpsed the future that he might have had as well, which is he's in love with this woman and their relationship I find really affecting. And she's moved on, and um, and and also I, I found that to be really emotional. And just there's that scene where he explains his gift to Tom Skerritt. Uh, who's the sheriff who says, "Come help me find this killer," and 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 he says, "You think this is a gift, but you don't you, you don't know." And Scarrett's you know just reaction to him is just is is really affecting. I love this movie, and it, I think it shows what kind of person, despite all Cronenberg's weirdness and his sort of you know the violence and the and the crazy sex, 
he is a person who very much understands humanity mm-hmm. and human in human urges and human weakness. And this movie, I think, really has that in there. Plus, I think it's a tight script. And um, interesting, I couldn't stop thinking about. The Trump parallels with yeah, the minute he rose to the Greg Stinson. In fact, the most unrealistic part of this movie is that once uh, the Martin Sheen character is revealed to be a horrible human being, he's not going to be elected. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You're like, I, I was watching that in the scene, you know, the, the deal-breaker form. I was like, ah, yeah, see, now the future's changed. I was like, yeah, Trump did that like 80 times yes. before he even won and, the election. And the, de- and the Dead Zone was a movie that a lot of people referenced during the, the 2016 oh, yeah. campaign. It was very resonant. So, again, uh, that speaks to what a great sort of timeless yeah. Hollywood movie that, that uh, Cronenberg made. Also, also, uh, have to point out again as the super fan, uh, the cinematography in this movie is terrific. Mm-hmm. I remember there's that they go in that tunnel, that beautiful tunnel that's lit with white light. Um, great, great flick, man. I just the ice is gonna break. The ice is gonna the break. Ice is gonna break. Uh, it's Mark so Irwin, good. who worked with Cronenberg uh, on Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, and The Fly. Yeah, he shot the hell and out of it. Company. And yeah, that's the one Cronenberg <laughs> I still haven't seen. I wonder if that's the scariest movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he made it. What was it? Now, we should contextualize. What, what, it's a. It's like a. It's like a drag racing movie. Yeah. So he made like he made like. Sexual zombie, sexual vampire. The, did he make the brood? Dude, when he's when he's talk- and then boom, he makes a drag racing. When movie. When he's talking about his movies, he says, "Oh, I sneak race car stuff into all my movies." There's always something with you, know, if you don't know. It. A, like the design of the pods and the fly are designed on the part of one of the, uh, the engine of one of his That's favorite right. cars. You're like, yeah, he's a big racing enthusiast. And the best part of, of uh, Rabbit was that mm-hmm. car accident that probably took all of their fucking budget. And they, <laughs> if you saw that car hits another car, flips off a bridge, lands down the maybe. They're okay in a semi truck. This had no budget, but that was expensive. Unless yeah, they get crash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, he's exploring his own love affair of cars. And I, I do think, um, yeah, the motorcycle stuff was well. The attached. Yeah. I remember that was a really leap forward. It was a really spectacular shot. In the- uh, interestingly, the original script of The Dead Zone was written by Stephen King, and it was rejected by Cronenberg, who said, wow, this is way too brutal, <laughs> believe it or not. Really? Yeah. He said, needlessly brutal was yeah, his description was of it. Wow. Quote, Boehm's script yeah. is is a wonder. I think and it's then he a, took really all smart. the tumor stuff out, which is fine. Oh, is there something to that? Yeah, in the book, that's how Johnny has the psychic abilities. Is he has a tumor? So, is there still a is there still a coma? Yeah, there's still the coma. Which, but he also has yeah, a tumor. Yeah, he has a car accident because the tumor kind of... Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, the tumor's growing. Yeah. Okay. will kill him. So he's going to die anyway. Yeah, the, uh, the producer's room being like, okay, who do we know who handles tumors? But <laughs> 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 I can't I get think Cronenberg, of a guy. What I don't Cronenberg understand is Cronenberg saying, no, 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 no tumor, yeah. It's a smart cut. Because yeah. you really don't need it. Yeah, really you don't. don't. It is surprising that he didn't. Interestingly, want it. the first choice to play the lead role in here was Bill Murray. Yeah, I saw that too, and I was like, "Why? That doesn't know." Um, yeah, but but then it. again, Bill Murray may have had his early break if he had and, done and this. And then as you an see him as a actor. serious actor yeah. instead of. I mean, I know for years he had been wanting to do that. Like he he, I forget what movie it was. He the Razor's Edge. So well, like yes, yeah, so he could get the Razor's Edge. Yeah. Was it Ghostbusters? He agreed to do. Mm-hmm. That sounds so good. So he could make the Razor's Edge. So. Not that far distant in time from there. This was 1983, and that was, what, 85 or 86, yeah. something like that? So he's obviously pushing for that. Uh, okay, next up is Ooh. The Fly. This was definitely...
definitely his most financially successful film by a sizable margin. The Fly was a monster hit, so to speak, internationally, bearing very little resemblance to the original Vincent Price film, Uh, which is good, I think, on the whole, since that film is very dated. It's more funny than it's scary now. (laughs) It's worth watching, but nobody would say there's anything terribly scary about it. This movie brought in Jeff Goldblum to play the the mad teleportation-inventing scientist with Gina Davis as his girlfriend. Um, I remember seeing this in the theater and I almost had to throw up. Seriously. There's, there's, there were scenes in here that were so grotesque that Ugh. I couldn't stand it. I was like, oh, I can't even look at this. Even we're, when I was watching it yesterday, I was like, oh, I, I actually fast-forwarded through some yeah, of Yeah, it's a, it's a hard movie to get through. I was like, I don't want to see him vomit at his food. It's, that's why it's so startling to me that it was as a universal a big hit as it was, because it really is one of his most disturbing films. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's but it's super. I, I was I'm incredibly compelled every time I watch yeah, it. It's I very entertaining. Yeah, Jeff Goldblum is really fantastic. Oh, he, oh. Isn't he great? It's he his greatest so role. Great. Well, yeah, I, I don't know Jurassic Park. But. Well, you know, <laughs> this is actually my, one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Like, mm-hmm. If not, it's in my top five easily, if not my favorite. Like I love this movie just for it doesn't have to jump out and scare you. Like people get this misconception that horror has to have jump scares in it, and it doesn't. Like literally, this movie is terrifying just because of. What he does with, like, the concept of what, like, like body horror, like, and, and, and dysmorphia and things where it's like, and you have the Jekyll and Hyde and the werewolf, and he takes that concept to another level, and uh, it's just, it's brilliant. And how he's trying to hold on to what little humanity he has in his little, like, you know, in his little, uh, 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 cabinet, cabinet, yeah. And it's like, it's just so interesting that, that he wants to be better, but he can't. It's kind of like the plight of any good, you know, Victorian goth, you know, uh, villain. It, it's great. It's, In- interesting thing, he was not like uh originally going to be able to do this they they he was one of the first people they approached and he's like i can't i'm making total recall it's funny we were talking about total recall earlier yeah. he was set to direct total recall yeah. and eventually like that he got kicked off of that uh because a he was trying to stay true to the dick novel and they were like we're just trying to make a big action movie we don't really care about the original book oh, and he also kept insisting that William Hurt was the guy who should be playing the lead role and they wanted Schwarzenegger so he ended up leaving even though interesting note the whole mutants on Mars and even specifically the character Quato was David Cronenberg of course left yeah. over yeah, from Cronenberg's Cronenberg. you're like ah that makes so much more sense now, yeah, right? To the, to, to the benefit of all of us, though. Yeah, exactly. We have the total recall that we all love. And we all love so. Yeah, open your mind. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got John Getz, who just came off of Blood Simple a few years ago. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. So there you go. Um, yeah, David Cronenberg does have a small role in this as a gynecologist. Gina Davis is gynecologist <laughs> towards the end. He, uh, yeah. he births the... The maggot. Yeah, uh, presumably. Because we never actually see it unless you count sequence, the fly, yeah. too. He also has a cameo in Extreme Measures as, as a doctor. For, right. on the doc, or On the doctor medical board, I think. This definitely is one of the films that I think resonates the most with Cronenberg himself. He's said that this is one of his most autobiographical films. And this, and I believe Dead Ringers, was the other one he listed. How is it his... I, autobiographical. You, this is Cronenberg talking, so you have so to put that weird. in an abstract fashion. As well as Howard Shore's composer went on to relatively recently compose an opera based on it, and he say, directed the opera for him. And, and yeah, the opera had some really interesting ideas, if I recall. He, he changed it up so rather than a telepod, you become digitized mm-hmm. and, and are put through computers. 
Now, qu- question me, I just saw a note that this was his only Oscar winning... Yeah, the only film he won an Oscar for, for Best Makeup. Best Makeup. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, interesting. yeah Brundlefly. Oh, it's an amazing... It's, uh, yeah, this, it's uh, an amazing creation. And, and, oh, yeah. and to, like, take, like, a Kafka-esque type thing and make it scary and real and not laughable and... Because some things just don't translate well. This doesn't translate well, but yet it fucking works on every level. I it's, still want to track down the deleted sequence with the, uh, um... Oh, what is it? The, the the monkey cat. I've still not seen that. When the fly takes the shotgun and puts it to its own head. Yeah. I mean, like... That was such uh, a... I mean, it's so great. For me, it's it so was great. like when uh-huh. he's just about to devolve fully and he's like, you know, I, I was an insect that dreamt that he was a man. Yeah. I was like... I was like jawed to the floor. It's How great. poignant was that? This is also one of only two films that he ever even considered making a sequel to. And this one actually relatively recently, he said, actually, i re-exploring the idea of maybe coming back. Although he said, that, I mean, he originally, when they said, we want you to do a sequel, he's like, I actually have a whole treatment for a film, but you're not going to like it. Because it doesn't have any of the same characters, and it's very different. The only really similarity is that it has it involves teleportation. But he was like, thematically, it's a sequel. It's not in any other way. They were mm-hmm. like, no. And lately, he's been talking about it again. Uh, as well as, interestingly, the other one is Eastern Promises. Oh, yeah, I heard that. Full-on written a sequel to that before he even finished filming the first one, because wow. he just loved that main character. And the studio, and he fought over money. And so he's like, nope. But now, apparently, another studio is interested it, yeah, in making it. So. it. <clears throat> oh, Oh, without him? Oh. No, 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 no. He's doing it. Oh, is yeah, yeah. He owns he the sequel. To the project. Yeah, yeah. No, he he's the one who's getting it done somewhere because he owns the script. So. Uh, I mean, what, what makes this movie so good though is that there really is no villain. There is, but there is because when you, when you when you start watching Goldblum at the beginning, he is just a good dude who is just trying to do right by everything. And it's just a matter of circumstance. Like one little thing goes wrong, and it kind of just starts. He's, he's, best of intentions. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's the best kind of villain—a villain you understand. And you love the relationship between him and Gina Davis. Yeah. You actually like—he's a big nerd and is not great at this sort of thing. But he definitely is falling in love with this woman, who's definitely falling in love with him. You're rooting for them, and it's entertaining. You know? He's doing things like, "Look what I can do!" Oh, I'm on one hand now, huh? And, and just amazing. And, and, you know? If it wasn't for that relationship, this film would not work because the ending of this film totally yeah, sorry yeah. oh you broke the rule I know but that's <laughs> what I love one. about Cronenberg is the relationship of his characters yeah. that's an interesting one there I don't uh, I, I have to say this movie is a shining example of the fact that no one else would make a movie like this like, there isn't a single person who would have uh, who would have approached this material in a in a way that even resembles what he did with it yeah I mean, and it's funny because, you know, you, there's a lot of ways to make this movie and, and you even have almost the same script, but no one would make this movie the way he makes it. I mean, it's, it's as seriously he takes his plots. Like he takes it so seriously that you have to buy it. And I think like that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of other people, horror, you know, directors or, or, or sci-fi directors and stuff. I mean, they, you know, they, he, Cronenberg, like you were saying, he writes his own stuff and they're pretty tight scripts. They're not, you know, generally, I don't think he doesn't usually make very indulgent long movies. You know, there's a lot of, you know, they, they, they adhere to pretty standard screenplay rules, you know, they, and, but what he does with it is what's sort of amazing. And his, his idea of, you know, um, the world of the movie and especially this one, the fly is, yeah, I've never, I don't know that I've seen a creature quite like maybe the thing is probably the closest 
Um, Carpenter's the thing. That been, elaborate and realistic yeah. and practical monster. But it's compelling. And, but the thing was allowed to hide in other people. And it true. only had moments of showing. Yeah. It was like, there was no hiding. We see it. And even, even just other stuff, like he almost is a guy and he breaks the guy's arm. And yeah, I remember that, that the way it guy. pops out of just the skin. Just such a startling moment. It, I, I've never, you know, you, I guess you've seen stuff like that. I but saw it in the theater as It's a kid. so, and the one it that stays got, with the you. The one that got to me the most in here is when he pukes on the guy's yep. hand and oh, it just dissolves in front of his if you're a makeup artist for Cronenberg, you've just got to be like, oh, fuck, what are you going to throw at me? Yeah, I want to see it like... physically dissolve. Okay, I'll figure it out. It's, a, it's an Challenge. amazing flick. All right, let's move on to his next film, which is 1988's Dead Ringers, which was definitely another step in a direction that Cronenberg was largely unfamiliar with, which was... Mainly making a pretty straight movie on yeah. the whole. Um, this is certainly a movie that turns into a horror film. Yeah, this one's but, more psychological. But three quarters of this is a pretty straight sort of dra- character drama. Yeah. The only thing being the characters in it are all played by Jeremy Irons. <laughs> <laughs> Playing twins, twinsies. Uh, yes. Yeah, Russ was like, I bet they're going to ask us about this one. Why did you twins. not get a um, Do you only have one soul that you share with each yeah. other? Yeah. This Russ, do you want to take that because you had nothing uh, about it. to give the twin do we need to on Dead Ringers? Do you, you the... share one soul? Is what we're saying. That the is... answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> do you share woman? <laughs> that is uh, no. Hey, and they no, wouldn't I, really share a valid us. Question because Jeremy Irons' yeah. character I think, does in this movie. Um, so, so we should the only definitely time do. The, I could ask this to them. Right. We should definitely do the plot quickly. Yeah, that's a pretty yeah. standard twin question, actually. Is it okay? Uh, I, I, I can't imagine mistaking. You everybody has more, a stupid thing. You play a trick on. Girlfriends, you ever play? A t- yeah, it's a pretty standard question. Girlfriends or teachers? It would only yeah. work with a one night stand. Yeah, that's really one of the things that the idea that anyone who knows you knows either of us at all, like any any girlfriend or anyone we slept with, would sleep with the other guy by accident is yeah. ludicrous. Yeah. Like you just, I don't buy it at all. Um, but anyways, yeah. So uh, we should do the plot on this one. Do it, I guess. Yeah. Take it, because I guess because we're twins. We'll yeah, do the, that's it. yeah. So they're just uh, Jeremy <laughs> Irons. Jeremy Irons plays uh, <laughs> Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons. Play, if they did uh, it and it was perfect, we'd all be like, "Whoa!" <laughs> yeah, we should have. We should have. We should have practiced that. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. It's a suggestion we should have had. Um, they're uh, twin gynecologists who. Um, play who definitely fool who fool women i guess is the uh, everybody else yeah and they're, they're sort of strange closed off guys one is more uh, an extrovert one is more an introvert and um one one of them sort of falls for a woman that they're both sleeping with and uh bad stuff goes from there people and, begin to unravel and- yes and uh they they start to and then one of them begins to believe that there are mutant women, um, and that he, only he can uh, fix them. Yeah, when and, you suddenly go, oh, we're watching a chronicle. Yeah, <laughs> and then and then shit gets weird. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is definitely uh, a movie that is a little bit more disturbing. Being a twin, um, definitely that that hits me a little more. But it's not a movie I take very seriously on the twin stuff. It's definitely movie twin type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Even though it's based on a real story, yeah, story, but based on a real yeah. Story. I don't know if they were were they sleeping with the same woman though. I mean, I think they're just crazy yeah, gynecologists. They were just crazy gynecologists. Yeah, they were just crazy gynecologists. I, I got the feeling like the way this film wraps up is kind of similar to what actually happened. Yeah, um, the ending is really. Uh, yeah. It's something else. It's, it's 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 unsettling in that way that you just feel like your nerves are frayed watching it. Here are these totally reserved, super intelligent, you know, rich, very very well rich, put well put together guys who by the end are just 
as big a mess as a human being could possibly be. This is actually one of my favorite films. Um, I would say this is probably my favorite. Oh, wow. And I just loved the tension between the two brothers and the love interest. And I guess that's kind of how it starts is, you know, one of them actually has feelings for somebody else other than his brother. Mm-hmm. And uh, the actress, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then he gets caught up doing drugs with her to the point where he becomes an addict. And so the twin, in order to save him, becomes a drug addict too, because they must synchronize. Mm-hmm. And so just, this movie was just so incredible. The tension between the two brothers and they're just like, they're sick, twisted like love for each other and just i mean the scene with the gynecological instruments mm-hmm. that he has made because he has to for mutant women for the he has to re, re, you know reveal these mutant women for what they are i wonder uh, if somebody sells replicas or not i would totally they're buy this twisted <laughs> i mean as as a female that part was probably one of the most disturbing a- as a male it's pretty upsetting too it's just hard to even sit <laughs> through like i was like Ugh. jeremy irons i mean this was an incredible performance just i mean i don't was just sitting there going, all right, is there two of them? Like, literally, that the end scene where they're just, like, they die together was incredible. The twin stuff, the special effects are pretty great. It is very seamless. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, not, not, this was not nominated for an Academy Award, but Jeremy Irons went on to win the Oscar for Best Actor in 1991, a few years later, for Reversal of Fortune, and he thanked Cronenberg in his speech. I wonder why, what he, what he said. I think it was just a very, as an actor, a very rewarding experience, and I've, I've heard him say, like, yeah, it was one of the most difficult things he ever did. So I can imagine a lot of growth as an actor. Oh, yeah. And the, you know, like Vigo and him are still good buds, like to this day. Like I mean, they, they're oh, yeah. like the best of friends. It's gonna be in whatever I love working with Cronenberg. Uh, this for me, yeah, this and The Fly were two of the movies that that put Cronenberg at a level that he could make uh, mainstream movies, but still have you know a hint of his old style to it as well. And uh, yeah, Jeremy Irons' performance is amazing. Um, I, I mean, watching it, it definitely was. Uh, it's one of those few of his movies, like of his earlier movies, that you can like watch with like a regular non-film buff, and they'll just dig it no matter what. Kind of like the Dead Zone as well. Mm-hmm. It's one of those few that he has where you don't have to like feel like you're a weirdo for watching his movies. Yeah, um, although it is a weird movie. It is. Uh, what, it's what did weird, you... but it also never goes off into the abstract. Yeah, the, yeah. his other stuff does. It's yeah. not quite as. Well, mutant women and, and the well, red but, robes. But, it gets a little, but, a little weird. <laughs> but the mutant women thing really ties into the woman he's in love with has three cervixes or whatever. Yeah. yeah and, and so it ties into he, he wants to, like, he thinks that that was the problem in his mind, and he wants to fix that thing if it means cutting it out. And so it's kind of one of those weird, it ties back into that, that, that obsession he had with that woman. And his, I mean, it's his first relationship, yeah. and he thinks that she's cheating on him. So I get where so. it went, but yeah. I mean, I get the mutant thing, but yeah, it was definitely because it was tied into that woman who kind of he felt burned in but she was hanging out with her gay uh, assistant yeah yeah so well he was not really thinking very clearly no. he's not a stable person <laughs> so so yeah. how would you classify this movie i mean it's not a I horror film. I, I think it's I, psychological thriller i, I, I include it, it mainly because the fact that in the last like, 20 minutes or so of this film it definitely starts incorporating stuff that came out of his horror stuff mm-hmm. you know like the tools gynecological tools for mutant women and the very end of this film are very straight out of a Cronenberg horror film. There's definitely horror aspects here, but overall, yeah, it's more psychological drama. It's medical horror, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, nobody wants to go to a true. doctor and have him look at, like, your most sensitive part of your body yeah. mm-hmm. and 
shove something in there. At least there. HR Geiger-esque <laughs> like, uh, tools. I, yeah. Um, well, speaking of HR Geiger-esque tools, that brings us to our next film, Naked Lunch, uh, 1991, where he went full on. You know what? It's been too long since I went full weird. Let's go full <laughs> weird. And also, his uh, two films in a row, he got to direct his two of his favorite authors that he's been talking about since he first started making films. This one being, of course, William S. Burroughs, who, if you ever see interviews with Cronenberg, he quotes Burroughs, like, constantly. He's mm. obviously yeah, a, he's big fan. a big fan. And Naked Lunch, it's funny, Burroughs enthusiasts uh, of, the, of his writing have often criticized it, saying this really is not an adaptation of that book. Cronenberg counters with, and how, pray tell, do you do an adaptation of Naked Lunch? It's unadaptable as is. You could make, I think at one point he said something like, you could make ten different movies called Naked Lunch that are all based on that book and they would barely resemble each other. And this is one one story you can take out of this book. Yeah, I mean, it, it was him trying to make a movie about Burroughs making the book. Yeah, it's it's a cross, well, it's, actually, it. it's actually yeah. an adaptation of Naked Lunch and of Burroughs' book Inner Zone, which was a sort of, here's what was actually happening while I was writing Naked Lunch, and all the fucked up shit we were doing, and the fact that I really was tripping that hard. And about the death of his it. wife, you know, him him murdering his own wife by accident. Story. Yeah, let's Yeah. That scene, when you know that that's true, and repeatedly in this thing, the movie that thing the keeps William happening. Tell it's like, act. hey, she, yeah, let's do our William Tell act. And she put the apple on his head and he shoots and shoots her right in the forehead and she dies. Like, yeah, that's exactly what really and happened. And said that that was actually the moment where he became a writer. And he's like, if I hadn't killed my wife, I probably would have never become a writer. Uh, Peter Weller wow. playing yeah. William Lee. Uh, Peter amazing, Weller yeah. playing this terrific he's performance. Amazing. It's very deadpan, as is often Peter Weller's mm-hmm. way. <laughs> well, Robocop, he had a lot of personality. Um, just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I would say Bucker Banzai was his most go. enthusiastic performance I've seen. Mm-hmm. Maybe as the evil uh, starship captain in Into Darkness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. uh, Judy okay. Davis plays his wife. Ian Holmes in this. Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, one of the most interesting moments of That's his so career. Uh, and I love that there's so much here that ties into his like uh, into um, uh, Cronenberg's big conspiracy thing, like oh, there's all these secret levels, wheels within wheels, yeah, and wheels within wheels, and, and about human transfiguration. There's so much of that going on, and lots of stuff that is de- definitely like you can see where he got his stuff from Burroughs, like especially a lot of the gender transformation stuff that's going on here. That sequence where you realize one of the characters was actually Roy Scheider underneath it the whole time, who <laughs> was a woman, and he turns sideways with her half of like the latex body of hers, so you just see that side, even though it's just the latex piece, and uh, they have the ADR in the voice of the actress playing that part. You're like, that was kind of a disturbing moment. <laughs> um... Yeah. It's also about sexuality this, and drug abuse, mostly. Lots of fun stuff. I think it's almost a movie that's pure theme. You mm-hmm. know, I think that... I, I agree. It's... it's Because I... There is... I like... I mean, there's a very... um Almost more 80s-ish feel to this movie. Like, it feels almost more like a sort of crazy 80s sci-fi, low-budget indie movie. Because it's got all that kind of stuff going on in it. But, um... I like all that stuff. That there's like secret agents and there's like you know. I like the sort of noirish feel of the movie. It was always something that drew me to it. Yeah, and I, that I think is really neat. But it's also, and then it, it keeps weaving that in with 
his attempt to be a writer and then that also playing into his uh, exploring his like you were saying his sexuality and so it weaves all these things sort of together and it keeps it's amazing how it, it they do all dovetail together mm-hmm. um you know the idea of, of secrets secrets from yourself and and all that stuff but uh it still it still kind of does have a plot i guess he kind of he does give it one it seems like there's stuff going on like you think like oh this is kind of getting off the rails and then boom it comes back to uh uh you know this sort of conspiratorial secret agent sci-fi it's definitely stuff. his most complicated plot and i think a lot of it is i mean people are like well i didn't really understand what was going on i don't think you're but you were ever intended yeah. to understand everything that was going on here a lot of it is <clears throat> like you said it's all theme it's so it's meant to be abstract tunnel. and interpreted yeah it's 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 there's that almost videodrome dream logic going on at large portions of this where you're like okay this happened but not literally in the way that you're seeing. And he has a couple of moments where he, he sort of shows you reality. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a big thing in this one about uh, there's a typewriter, a bug, a typewriter that becomes a bug that talks to him. Um, and yeah. it's also he like his... sexual pleasure when he's typing. Yeah. Which cracks me. Yeah. Uh, it has a little hole in it, too. Yeah. yeah. He's like... He's like hole. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that going on in Cronenberg. <laughs> powder on my, on my lips. Um, <laughs> the, little, the, little, the little bug typewriter in And this. not only that, but he has a long, fascinating story about a guy who teaches his his butt to talk. Yeah. And yeah. he and it's it's a really amazing moment because it starts out and you think like is this going to be a joke? And then it turns into this this strange bizarre metaphorical parable thing and then the movie you know it, it starts to resonate throughout the movie and um I, that kind of stuff just kind of blew me away about it. Weller's great. I mean, I can't, like you guys mentioned him, I think he's, and I think all the actors are, everybody's in, like, all the way, because this is a weird movie. But this, the score to me is the real star of this one. Is it? That score, how it sure does, it's just, it's so just, you know, gumshoe, cool. yeah. film and all, it, yeah. it's just yeah. great. And it's definitely something that, you know, obviously wasn't something he'd done before, really, and it was just something really cool to hear a different style of, uh, I don't know, like Howard Shore and him just go so well together. It's, it's more, um... I guess it's funny. Cronenberg is definitely a, he has very strong visuals in his movie, but I don't think of him as sort of a uh, show-offy director. I think of him um, more restrained. Uh, he he think he films things very efficiently and simply, but they're not sort of these amazing, beautiful, insane um, shots. And this one I felt like was more stylized. It was more cool looking. More it had more um, going on there than he normally does. Uh, at least that was my definitely take on. Like a very Miller's Crossing type look to it. Yeah, it has that sort of gangster forties noir, and it suits the material. It always had nice lighting and like a little half, you know. Inside. Yeah, it's Peter really Weller cool. looks good in a fedora. He yeah. does, and they film the crap out of him. <laughs> he can wear the shit. Uh, in the not a movie. The only movie I that that I try to think of another movie like this. It's unique, even for Cronenberg. I feel like it's kind of a unique movie. The only movie I can compare this to is if you liked Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I was actually going to bring that up. It's very Fear and Loathing esque. Um, especially, um, I just, the, it just, the so, there's so many similar themes to that. Yeah. Drugs, the dr- craziness. Yeah, drugs yeah, the, the uncertainty of like whether or not scenes you're seeing are actually. Yeah. The reliability of the narrators. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like objects becoming creatures and those creatures want to, or your buddy. This is definitely one of the movies you don't want to watch on an airplane with your headphones on. And you see like, you know, a typewriter become an insect, get a huge boner. 
Yeah. And you're like, no, I'm not a weirdo. <laughs> Who let all these goddamn lizards in here? Um, and I loved uh, the uh, the voice of. Is it all the same voice that that very Bur- Burroughs has a very? I guess you guys have all seen. If you guys have all heard Burroughs, but sure. he's a very distinct uh, uh, raspy voice. And I guess that's the voice of all the like creatures yeah, of the typewriter. The creatures of the typewriter talk. It's, I think it's that's, supposed to it's be Burroughs. It's not Burroughs. It's not but, dead on enough to feel like he's trying to do an impression, but it's familiar enough where. I feel like it's indicating that this is like what's going on in Peter in William Burroughs' mind. Right, like he's talking to himself. Like mm-hmm. Mug Chump, or is that yeah. the name of it? Mugwumps? Mugwumps. Mugwump Jism, which plays a big part in this movie. As Lots of characters <laughs> drinking Mugwump Jism directly from the source. Uh, <laughs> it's the only yeah. way to drink it. Yeah, well, yeah this movie is... Uh, that was his third type of Yeah, I, I prefer my Mugwump Jism pasteurized myself. It's just <laughs> nothing like this movie. It's so... Just... Weird. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. I would say it's his weirdest movie, Definitely. which is a strong wow, word. That and, is, it, yeah. and it's not from his own mind, which is what's great. Yeah, well, I mean, it is though too. It's it is. It's Burroughs filtered through Cronenberg. If you've read Naked yeah. Lunch, it's it's what they call exquisite uh, corpse. You're not supposed to read it straight through. Yeah. You're supposed to just pick it up anywhere and open it and well, read until you, you feel like you're done. Yeah. yeah, but there's no stop or start point to them. They're all just sort of mashed together. It's one of those you'll know when you're done reading, and then next time you pick it up, just pick it up somewhere else and start it. And it's like I said. It's one possible interpretation of that you could get out of reading that. Yeah, book I mean, it's way. part biography, part adaptation. And it's listed in the top 100 books written by an American author. Oh, I didn't wow. realize that. Oh. Yeah. Which is like, yeah, it was very criticized when it came out too. Sure. Uh, now, I don't want to spend too much time on our next to last one here because I think this is only nominally a horror film. There's definitely horror horror aspects, but that's his adaptation of J.G. Ballard's Crash in 1996. Um, I I will say, despite I don't think of this as a horror film. It's still too disturbing for a lot of people to watch. I am absolutely traumatized by this film. I'm serious. Like, I I watched this film, I think I watched it not long after it came out, and I was absolutely fucked. It's one of those things that you can't stop thinking about for a week, like Jack Ketchum's, you know, Girl Next Door audition or something like that. It's like one of those things that just sticks with you. And I refused to rewatch it again for this <laughs> review. I just read the wiki, so I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to watch it again. That's how disturbing this film is. I, I remember renting this, well, using my dad's uh, account when I was a kid to rent this movie. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so great. All this nudity. Can't wait to watch this. <laughs> and when I, yeah. And, and, and <laughs> I remember, you learned your lesson. Oh God, when he fucks her leg. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he scarred me like. Literally, it, yeah. it scarred me for a long time, um, but it's good. Like, the thing about this movie is, like, you know, when it played at Cannes, I think half of the theater probably walked out or whatever, but it's one of those ones, it's very split down the middle, but what's so great about it is how he takes, you know, a, a car crash and uses it as a metaphor for, you know, almost the porn industry, people that are uh, have no feelings towards sex, and really uses it in, in a very interesting way, and yes, a lot of it is unbelievable that... Somebody, somebody could like literally, yeah, just lose their husband and want to, you know, have sex with the guy who killed her husband, you know, a few weeks later in the back of another car. It's like, yeah, that kind of is. But if you give into his stories like you're supposed to, you kind of get the message he's sending, and it's very, you know, uh, 
you know, it's definitely a, it's, it's a strong one. And a, it's, it's definitely it's the one that most reflects his feelings about cars, oh uh, which are strong. But I think it's really, it's his mashup between the arm, that almost perverse American love for cars as a sadomasochistic kink, mm-hmm. you know. And apparently this is, actually is a real thing. There are people who are really obsessed and get off sexually on car accidents. And, I mean... You, you have to have a lot of money to have that fetish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a good health insurance. The only person that they could cast would be James Spader. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. But Do you remember was... when he was a huge sex symbol? And now he's just huge. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I... Yeah, he's married to Deborah Kara Unger here, who's also very kinky, and they have an open marriage. And uh, great. after James Spader gets in a bad yeah. car accident, killing Holly Hunter's husband, she she's a doctor. Uh, they kind of come together in a sort of like, wow, we're both disgusted by ourselves that we keep obsessing over this accident and the violence it caused, but we're also it's erotic. Like there's a scene where he looks. You know, right after the accidents happened, and he sees Holly Hunter still in the car, and her shirt is disheveled to the point her breast is showing, and it's a strange sort of like peeping yes. Tom moment uh, yeah. that's awkward and sexualized in and of itself, yes. and it's kind of that first defining moment for this film that lets you know what kind of movie you're in for. <laughs> One of my favorite Cronenberg scenes ever was that scene because he hit he hits that car, and her husband goes flying through his windshield yeah. into his car. Head hits the seat, head sideways. He looks down, staring at her dead husband, looks up and sees her breast hanging out, and nothing else mattered. Yeah. It was such a powerful, like, it's such a very, like, like visual moment. You're like, it's such a brilliantly directed scene. It's, um, I remember it, I, I think it probably says in there, but, uh, it can, it, it, they gave it a special award for, like, audacity or audacity. something like that, or, or, like, um, nice. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it said, uh, I, yeah, I don't remember what the um, what the specific thing was. I remember Coppola was the head of the jury, and it got a lot of crap for it. Um, jury prize, it won yeah. a jury prize. It won an AVN award. Right. <laughs> it did. It won best alternative adult feature film award. Uh, wow! I bet Cronenberg went. I bet he was like stoked. Um, it's a movie. I remember it opens with um, I think. Three or four sex scenes back to back. I mean, the whole movie is and, sex scenes back. Yeah, you have and, to build the infidelity between the, the right. The but a nominee movies will open with multiple sex scenes back to back. I remember, and he tried to, and they're, they're expository as well, which is pretty neato. Um, yeah. But it is a, uh, it's a weird movie. Uh, it, it definitely pushes your comfort level, like you know. And I think um, way past almost anyone's. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, Cronenberg. He just, I remember seeing an interview about it and he talked about the idea of technology and that he said, I think as, as people, we don't even think of cars as technology anymore. They're such a like background feature of our life, but they are. And we interact with them in such a strong way that of course we would, you know, they're going to get intertwined in in something like this. Obviously this is an extreme example, but, um, that was, that was just that simple idea is what Cronenberg's great. And I was like, oh, wow. Cars are technology. They're giant, you know, rolling computers. And um, so just that idea of, like, making you think about something like that, much less all the sex stuff connected to it. Uh, it's a weird movie. I don't – I mean, it's definitely – if you want to watch something strange, this is a good movie. It's to also – I mean, I think it's a really stylish, nice-looking movie. It is a cool like, from a directorial movie. standpoint, I think it's one of his, his sort of most polished films. Yeah, it's a sleek-looking film. Um, and uh, a really great cast – uh, but yeah, who are in? Yeah, they're totally in. Elias Coteus, who's like the guy they meet, who's whose whole who's, 
who's so obsessed he's yeah. committing crimes at this point in order to get his his finish. Well, they have that great Cronenberg idea again, thinking about the culture where they reenact famous car crashes like yes. James Dean's car crash yeah. and stuff. It's just stuff like that is why Cronenberg Another is Cronenberg. Another great point about this, even though it was 96, was it? That, I mean, there's, like, a lot of gender fluidity in this as well. Like, he, they don't really care who they're fucking. As right. long as there's, like, that element oh, yeah. of It doesn't even add into it. And they don't yeah. mess with it. Yeah. Ender has a pretty hardcore scene with Katan. Yeah. Yes. And, like, they're just, I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, that came out of left field when I was a kid. I was yeah, like, they, right. just, they don't care. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's, they're just driven by this fetish. Yeah. I mean, obviously, one of the most disturbing scenes is him basically fucking Rosanna Arquette's what? scar yeah, in her leg. Egg, Which makes you but question, like, it's how not, was that scar? Considering, <laughs> considering Cronenberg, it's not, it, it is weird, but it's not near as graphic as, no, like, I wasn't even, sh- I wasn't totally sure what had happened the first, I was like, what, wait, what, well, what happened? Probably because he was this close to getting an X rating as it was, and right. it's like, okay, you could only go so much further at that point and not and be able to show in theaters anywhere, but I think really the topper moment that really just left me, oh God, like, sick to my stomach, thinking about it is the final scene in here yeah. as he follows Derek, uh, you know, hits Deborah Kara Unger, his wife, his car, knocks it off the road, and he, you know, stops his car and runs off, and he's like, honey, honey, are you okay? And she, you're not sure for a minute. You think she might be dead. And then she breathes. She's like, yeah, I think I'm okay. And he starts immediately, like, feeling her up and kissing her and goes, yeah. it's okay, honey. It'll happen next time. And you're like, Jesus Christ, they're trying to die during this so yeah, he can I get off sexually. That was kind of the, the end point that I think Cronenberg was trying to make is, in the end, they weren't really fetishizing the crashes. They were fetishizing death itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, All right. So let's move on to our final film. And definitely the... This is the last movie I like by David Cronenberg. I have not. Wow. No, no, I'm sorry. That's not the last horror-related thing. Because Spider is considered horror, but I thought it was in a way. But it's dull as fucking shit. It's just awful. I like, I like Spider. <laughs> but Existence is definitely back to the sci-fi for him. And oddly, this is 1998. It came out very shortly after The Matrix. And I'm. There's a lot of people always like to say, yeah, I kind of prefer the existence to the Matrix. It's the same idea in some ways, but explored extremely differently. Yeah. I mean, they both yeah. deal with sort of these full-on virtual realities that the characters are, are for the bulk of the movie and maybe all of the movie completely. And it's about that question of, well, how do you, how can you tell if something's real or not? Or how does something not being real make it less real than what is real? Uh, and Jude Law playing the lead character versus... Uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee as a video game designer, Allegra Geller, and you know, with the, that bizarre, organic, alive video game system that you so literally amazing. plug into the yeah. anus in your back, <laughs> like socket, yeah, uh, and that puts you in that in the Matrix, basically, full on VR. And I feel like this movie is even more relevant now than when it was made, Absolutely. as we've all become so much more. Uh, like conversational in the understanding of how video games work and how RPGs work and how um, VR, what VR is and how we're just now starting to understand, yeah, this is going to be pretty much real at one point. Maybe not the plugging in the living organic unit, but a VR that's so real you can't tell the difference. Absolutely. And it actually has one of the first scenes that I remember seeing in a movie where everybody's staring at a, a, a portable device screen at the very end. Do you remember that? Like yeah. They're all looking at it and I was like, are they all looking at their phones? <laughs> it's like, what's happening? Uh and then there's levels. There's yeah. levels and factions in in classic Cronenberg style. Is you know there's like a rebel well, faction. Yeah, yeah. The realists. Yeah, the realists. Yeah. Yeah. The people that want the, the VR. I, I just I one. It's weird rewatching this. Towards the end, I found myself getting 
really excited by this film. Like, wow, I just really love what they're doing here with that that last line. We're still in the game, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, oh man, that it's, was amazing. Just a great example <laughs> of him being so ahead of the time. Yeah. This was, yeah. What? Twenty years ago, this movie. Ninety-eight. Ninety-seven. Ninety-eight. Ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. Yeah. So a good while back. Um. I always feel, because I used to hear that too, uh, the, the Matrix existence argument. To me, it's like, it's not really a fair one, because the Matrix, you know what the ride you're on. Mm-hmm. Existence, you don't. Yeah. So it's different stories, and I get ones definitely, I mean, completely more, I mean, the Matrix is still a good movie. I love the Matrix. Yeah. Um, existence, uh, the last 20 minutes will make this movie, like, amazing. Yeah. Because if you're watching the movie, and it didn't have that, that resolution... It's just confusing as all get yeah, it. But that ending saves the movie so much. It, ti- it Unlike, say, something like Naked Lunch, where it's still left kind of, well, yeah. figure it out. The, by the end, it really does explain 99% of what we've seen and, and why it's happening the way it is. And Jennifer Jason Lee's character being that she's the one, in essence, controlling the VR world they're going in because she kind of, I guess, had the strongest personality and pretty much took over as host of the game, yeah. mm-hmm. which makes sense to why the actual device is organic because they're for life as opposed to virtual world life. And so it's really interesting when you really like grasp on what happens at the end, you, uh, you you really go on that, you think about the movie even more and you go back and you might go, oh, that all makes sense now, why everything happened and why Jude Law's convictions make sense as his character in the dream world and uh, whatnot. Which is presuming even that we've seen the final layer the fi- of Yeah, it, the final you know? level of, of the game. <laughs> I think we had to have. Because the game changed completely. They were a plastic game. Remember they had a plastic True. headset? But then once the again, we, there could be another level even on top of that. Uh, don't don't eat Total Recall. Me right yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking watching it as well. Also, I one thing that always I was surprised by in this movie is the Cronenberg's choice to put it in a sort of a rural setting. Um, yeah, that was yeah. odd. It's I, even even now when I watched it again for for this show, I was like, I, it's it's always strange to me, like because it seems like it's going to go somewhere. You know, when you see movies like this, they usually have a much more urban setting, and and he kept with that motif throughout, like the weird restaurant they go to, the weird <laughs> the factory, gas station, yeah, the like- very country gas station, and so it was almost sort of a conscious decision to not put it anywhere near where you would think a movie like this would go. Um, also, I, I want to say. Um, I think the moment with the food gun is yeah. probably one of my favorite moments ever in a movie because it's it's I've you've never seen another scene like that. Like no. he keeps eating, he keeps eating, and you're like, what? Where is this Ugh, going? It's so gross. And then it and it is. that he puts together a weapon and and then uses the weapon. I mean, that, it's really great. It, it's a testament to his writing. Well, I think. And, and the way that even figures into the bigger storyline, the idea that like this is that moment where he unco- Jude Law's character uncomfortably realizes how unpleasant these games really can be when they're forcing you to do these awful things so the plot can go along. And mm-hmm. as a as a viewer and these characters themselves realizing, holy shit, this is the same gun that happened in reality. How is this part of the game structure? Yeah. You know, and you start realizing, wow, there's a lot, something a lot more nefarious going on here in the bigger plot. But yet that's just so... That idea of like it uses human teeth as as bullets, like oh, that whole yeah. scene it makes you feel. That icky. part was really gross, but would, I mean, it's like oh, that's a Cronenberg gun, you know. Yeah. It would be, yeah. and it was it was already disgusting that they were they had new mutant breeds of fish, so they tasted weird. That's why they would serve it to you. I was already out. Now <laughs> I got to eat it and make a gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The special. The, the thing that was weird to me about it though. 
if it was a video game, it'd be a video game I would never fucking play. Like, we're just going to hang out at a Chinese restaurant for, like, 30 yeah. minutes, then hang out with me cutting fish for 15 minutes. Yeah, that's, what, that's, that's what I thought, too. The first time I watched this, I thought, this really isn't the most exciting game. It's sort of like, this is what we're doing? Like, with, you work in a fish factory? With Robert Silverman, who apparently is immortal because he's looked greasy and old his entire <laughs> life. He had a come over when he was 18. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, 18, he had a come over. Uh, yeah, a uh, lot of... Uh, Suggestive metaphor to the port in the back. Looping oh uh, yeah. it up too. Yeah, it up. yeah. They, don't, they don't even try. They don't even try. It's thinly. I mean, it's paper thin. I mean, yeah. Jude Law is bent over as they uh, <laughs> stick something in his lower back, and yeah, it's just there's yeah. no mistaking the shot of the little miniature version of the game system that just goes and crawls inside. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh, he crawled inside. Me. <laughs> You're like, oh. Oh, that is awful. Get out of there now. Burn it. Set it on fire. Do um, something. And is it just me or was Jude Law's character kind of a himbo? Like, I felt that the first time I watched it, I felt it now. Like, I was like, he's not a particularly appealing character. He seems kind of dumb. Do you feel like that was, like, a choice? Or? It definitely was. He, yeah. he had to play down that he had any type of... of you know, similar to what the plot was going to be. Mm-hmm. He had to be like the, the, the dopey, oh, I'm just a security yeah, guy. Yeah, he was supposed to be that, he had to be that guy. Not even just security guys. Like, I don't know why they said I was a security guy. I'm yeah. just a fucking, like, yeah. I'm, I'm like an intern, essentially. I, I do love Jennifer Jason Lee. It's like, I oh, yeah. love her in this. I think she's, like, super example. cool, super sexy. Like, she just rocks this movie. Like, I, I wish, I almost wish there was more of her in the movie. Like, I feel like they almost spent too much time on Jude Law, and I, wish, I would rather just hang out with her. She so. was, actually. She was really good. And the, the gun review at the end when the dog's got the fur. Yeah. How about the dog? Like, he's like, thanks for watching my dog. And then they, like, walk over with the giant dog and I was like, what's happening? There's a a running No one thought that was weird. The gun reappearing, which does twice and both times, like, the dog brought me the gun. Yeah. (laughs) My dog brought me this gun. You're like, oh, the dog from the Chinese restaurant. Uh, it's, that scene was great. Then we get shot in the side of his face. Yeah. Pulls out the freaking butcher knife and then gets shot. Uh, and gets yeah. Oh, he doesn't mess around. It's definitely some gross ass. Anybody want some soup? Yeah. <laughs> and then it was interesting. I guess Cronenberg said that he he was trying. He was. He, I don't know where he goes because of the the fatwa on Salman Rushdie when he wrote the Satanic Verses, and I guess he knew Salman Rushdie, and they had that million dollar bounty on his head, and he had to go into hiding. And so he said, so I was inspired to write this strange movie about video games. I, I don't know where – I mean like there is a, a bounty on um, Jennifer Jason Lee's head in the movie. But the rest of the movie, I don't know how you make that connection. I don't know where you come up with this weird video game movie. But, I mean, I'm you know, that's Cronenberg. I don't yeah. know how he tied those two things together. Yeah. Uh, like you said, that's Cronenberg. Yeah. <laughs> Something that I think is really interesting though is like I, I try to stay really like uh, – not literally plugged in, but plugged in on what's going on in in, in the tech world. That I, I do a lot of, you know, film stuff, and uh, what like uh, virtual reality is becoming is insane. Like literally right now, like GoPro has a thing called the Omni out, which stitches six GoPros together. You can put it anywhere you want, shoot anything, and put on a pair of headsets and watch in complete submersion wherever you're at, which oh. allows you to actually time travel. Well, not time travel, but travel at the speed of light. Like somebody can have a setup in China shoot something and you're actually virtually there your body's not there but your mind's there if they get the stitching together and the resolution together to a level that i mean you're talking the next three four years you'll be able to be anywhere in the world at any time you want by putting on a pair of goggles Mm -hmm. and it's true it's going to happen like very soon 
And uh, I mean, I'm already like playing with stuff now, and it's, it's crazy. You, like it, it's going to change and revolutionize a lot of things, and it's scary because you're going to be so out of what the real world is. Hopefully, it never deals with actual nerves and being able to touch things and feel things because that's going to be I'm, a whole other. That's revolution. already something they know they can do. Uh-huh. It's just a matter of how do you do it without it being invasive is the problem. And you know, and I think this movie doesn't. Get, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say it. Just it reminded me of a book um, by the guy who wrote Fight Club, Chuck. Um, he wrote a book called Rant, which um, they had a similar port in like the back of their skull, and that's they just that's how they live their life, just plugged in. And I was like, this, yeah, that's or once again the Matrix. Yeah. I mean, you know? I think that's what Cronenberg is really good at is sensing um, how we're going to react to something like that. And I think the idea that, like you're saying, you know, people always want to tell you to just get off your phone. I can only imagine if you're plugged into a headset, where you're like, you're not living your real life, you're missing it. And it would be... But define what is real. Right. And I think they have that problem in the movie, which is really terrific, is they keep saying, like, I'm... You know, they're trying to process not only what's happening in the game, but how they feel about it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then that they can't... They're starting to not be able to discern what's real and what's not, which I think continues to be one of the more interesting things about the movie. Just like in video drum, public life is more real than your private life. Yeah. And Willem Dafoe goes, he goes, well, what do you do in the video game or other world? He goes, well, I run a gas station, but I do everything else I want to do too. (laughs) Right. run a gas station. And then I love, like, at the very end, he's just like, I only had a small bit in this whole storyline, but I did my best, guys. <laughs> I had a bit role. I did like seeing everybody at the end decide, oh, well, I was kind of bored by my character over there. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Like yeah, that was cool. Um, yeah, Christopher Eccleston, I got killed right off the bat! <laughs> yeah, that's what I would have said. Um, and once again, this may be the most pure of the films with his discussion of that fusion of man and technology. You know, right. Us coming together and becoming one. Interesting... It, like interestingly, the comparisons of the Matrix seem to have humans becoming more like machines, yes. and this is more like machines becoming more like humans. Right. You know, yeah. it's like they're becoming more organic, and it's the other way around on the Matrix. I mean, the Game Pod is like an amazing idea, as well as the sort of gun. Those those pe- no one would think to do something like that. Yeah, that yeah. weird. And then you go back to video drum when the gun becomes part of his own hand. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, or it, he it, takes the videotape and puts it directly inside, inside his own body. Which is, yeah. which by the way, I, one funny thing I heard is like originally when they when they were shoot, setting up to do that, they were using VHS tapes, which had already kind of won the war more largely at that point between that and beta. But then they realized the guy hadn't made the hole big enough for a VHS tape, so they had switched to beta. Yeah. So as it was smaller (laughs) it's a better format anyway yeah (laughs) just imagine that like your body can take a a format but it now it's outdated (laughs) oh god be careful with what elective surgery you get based on your media needs make Um, sure it's gen 2 so i did want to point out a couple other things about cronenberg one which was he was asked to direct top gun I did not know that. I do not know whose freaking idea that... And this is, like, after Videodrome and the Dead Zone. And I'm thinking, like... My mind right now is trying to process... I know. What is that movie? You know? And I just... I don't understand... I don't even understand what what they were thinking. Would offer that. Yeah, well, why Bruckheimer and Simpson were like, "Oh, that's a good idea." Yeah, he's this is the guy. Not Tony Scott. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, he was going to do Basic Instinct, too. Yeah, Basic Instinct... The second like, Basic Instinct, not Basic Instinct One, but Basic oh, Instinct, right, right, right. the yeah. sequel. Yeah, he was, and he was pretty close Which to we actually. Forget, it was a movie that was actually made. Just yes, much, much, with much Michael Caton Jones. Yeah. Uh, so, and then Total Recall. So, I think it's kind of interesting to see what movies, he the way things might have Total gone. Recall, I would have loved to have seen his version of it. Yeah. Although, I think in a sense, we get a sample of that in 
between Existence and Naked Lunch, yeah. I feel like between those two, we kind of sense what his Total Recall was. I always been. forgot he was on Alias, the TV show. That's he right. Was. Yeah. Wow. I always forget about that. Uh, I'm still trying to imagine what Top Gun would be like. I can't. You know, I mean, and uh, that's so weird. I would like to give a little shout out to his son. If any of you guys saw Antiviral, oh, oh right, yeah, Antiviral was really a trip. And you can definitely see his father's. Is it Brandon Cronenberg? Yeah, yeah. you can really see his father's influence in his in his like visceral horror. Although, although it's funny, like a lot of people like to describe things as Cronenbergian, but very few. There's almost none. No films described that way that you would make the mistake of thinking, "Oh, Cronenberg did actually direct this." Right. Any of those films people describe that way, you saw it. You no, that's not Cronenberg. Yeah. Except one, and that's Splice, who's not by a member of the Cronenberg family, but I swear to God, the first time I saw it, it's like, this has got to be a pseudonym for and David Cronenberg. He's Canadian. And shot in Toronto. Yeah. yeah. They were shooting, they were shooting at the same time I was shooting 222 in Toronto. Mm-hmm. So like, I've, I've done quite a few things in Toronto. My actual art director on A Kiss in the Promises is, is Cronenberg's niece. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So he is king of, him and Romero both live there. Well, so the, Toronto's got some good filmmakers. Yeah. Canadians. Those Canadians. Canadians. Was there other stuff you wanted to add? Um, I think that was it. I, I, Russ, uh, Russ and I were sort of discussing this, and there's a documentary that's on YouTube. It was an IFC documentary uh, called an, an American, American, American Nightmare. Nightmare. American Nightmare. Um, and it's about the 70s, uh, the, the sort of politics of the 70s filmmakers like Hooper and, um, you know, uh, uh, Carpenter. And, yeah. yeah. And they talked to Cronenberg, um, and um, he says they asked this really interesting question that Russ and I have always talked about. And I was, you sort of remember it better than I do. He, they say, it, I think it's one of the only times they actually break the, the wall, and he actually asked the filmmaker a direct question, and he says, is, is Cronenberg a revolutionary or a counter-revolutionary? And Cronenberg says, I, I don't know. I just think it's about freedom. And that's more important. And I and I think that I, I love it that it was that idea of like again that there are factions and there there are these things at war with each other. And Cronenberg's sort of beyond that, and he's looking for for the the real freedom. And and I think that that is in his work are people struggling to find something beyond sort of typical morality or or typical society. Um, and I think also uh, that's probably one of the reasons that I think parasites and and your body horror figures so. You're trapped. You know, your body is your body. You don't get another one. So you're not free or you don't feel free when it's under attack, but it's under attack from the inside. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's. And that was another quote, another great quote, I think, from that movie where they, he says, Of course, biology is destiny, but don't we all want to derail destiny? And I think that that's, again, something that all his characters try and do in one way or the other. 100%. Wow. That's yeah. pretty, yeah. Yeah. And that's Cronenberg, man. That guy's smart. That's. Yeah, that's yeah. A, in a nutshell. I just picked up his new book, Consumed, his first book. It's right. The he ever wrote. Yeah. Uh, unless you count Cronenberg on Cronenberg. Right. <laughs> um, and I, it got great reviews. I haven't got a chance to read it yet. But when you read the description, you're like, this sounds like a ni- 80s or 90s Cronenberg horror film. Yeah, it's, like, it's definitely been on my reading list. I, I did want to ask one question, and I think we already kind of covered it, but... Um, yeah, I think these movies count as horror, but were you ever really that scared in a Cronenberg horror movie? Because yeah. I think yeah. that they're not scared in the conventional a- watching Alien or you're disturbed, right? You're disturbed, right? They're terrifying, and I think there's and I think um, I, you know there's a feeling of dread, but they're not conventional. There is some conventional jump scares and stuff like that, but not not generally. I think the end of the fly is pretty genuinely scary. Yeah, I, I just I don't think Cronenberg is a horror director. I think he's a director who directs horrific things. Mm. Like he's not trying to like scare you. He's just trying to tell a story. And the thing that's so great about Cronenberg is when he got his start, 
Nobody was doing what he was doing. So he has now that ability to just be Cronenberg. Like, David Lynch to just be David Lynch. He didn't mm-hmm. have to, like, worry about, like, oh, nobody will fund me. Because he came in at a point when no one was doing what he was doing. Yeah, look what happens. He made Inland Empire. <laughs> There's a lot of resentment about that one for yeah, Chris. I don't you know what I'm saying? He's able to do what he can do now. Because he's tell an, his own voice because he is who he he's is. He's a singular yeah. filmmaker. Yeah, like, you're just going to, you're like, if he comes in to make it, you're like, oh, I want to make a David Cronenberg movie, not like everybody else. You're like, are you a horror director? You just make horror Any movies? Any college kid in the world could make shivers right now, frame for frame, and no one would give a shit. Right. Because it, it just wouldn't matter. Like, right. he did it at a time when it did matter. He was he a one of a kind voice. Like I said at the beginning of this, he always said, I don't really want to be a horror director. I don't want to be anything director. I want to be my own genre. I want to be a Cronenberg director. And, yeah. and, and he achieved that. And he did. And, and I think even the, the movies we talked about that don't necessarily have these sort of horror supernatural elements um, or sci-fi elements, I guess, that, that he has like like History of Violence or, or um, Eastern Promises – they still very much feel like Cronenberg movies. Oh, sure. Like oh, yeah. you just you can't get away from it's the from, relationships yeah. that he builds are just never normal relationships. They're always interesting and unique and different. The only one I found that I just didn't think feel, felt like a Cronenberg film at all that he did was Cosmopolis, which I'm just like I, I can't uh, even, oh, I can't even follow this fucking. Yeah, I hate to yeah I I really dislike that movie. Yeah, I did not. It's just so self indulgent and pointless. It's just yeah, he just doesn't feel like Is he that has a handle. The dude from Twilight. It's yeah. Robert Pattinson. Yeah. And He's in it, and it's, it's based on a. Ninety percent of it is just him riding around in a limousine, and yeah, so as a huge, yeah. as a huge uh, riot going <laughs> on. He makes a couple. Stops is it a Don DeLillo novel? It's somebody. Yeah, it. it's a, it's just a it's 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 a snooze. It's just not an interesting movie. I don't. I, it's a yeah. I didn't like that one at all. It doesn't. I think something really important to touch on though is like if anyone you know listening to this is you know. Uh, wants to be a filmmaker or a writer or whatnot, it's, you know... Then give it up, it's full. <laughs> no, but it's like, you know, watch a movie like... His movies will make you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but the brilliance of it is he has the balls to tell a story that, that is true to who he wants to be. He's not doing a movie for a studio. He's doing a movie for himself. And, like, even Eastern Promises was a, a independently financed. $50 mm-hmm. million dollar independent financed movie because he's, he's built this empire on who he is and what his vision is. And so you watch a movie like Crash... It doesn't matter if, you know, somebody walks out or walks in or whatever. He's making his vision, and you're not going to please everybody. And he's, you know, a standing true. testament to be true to yourself and make the best movie you can, and uh, that's all that matters. So I still wish he would go back to doing body art type stuff. <laughs> Wouldn't you kill to see another Cronenberg? I'd rather see that than Maps of the Stars. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I still haven't watched that, that watch one. Yet. <laughs> But I to me, like, I look at Eastern Promises, and it's like... Which was great. Yeah, I, that's... Probably would, one of his best movies. It's a great ever. flick. If he does make a sequel three. to that, I would totally be excited about it. That's to, a yeah. great character, and I'm like a lot of people are like, we need to see more of Vigo's naked body because there's a lot of it in these. <laughs> that, <laughs> that scene was one of the most intense scenes ever. Very that's, intense. That's, that's it's a brilliant that's idea. Like, yeah. Oddly, a very Cronenberg scene, yeah. despite nothing about it on the surface seeming that way. The idea he's fighting totally bare ass naked, this brutal and fight. Don't they have knives? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and also for actors, I was going to say because I've dealt with this couple of times in my career where it's like people are very like oh nudity this nudity that it's like watch a Cronenberg movie mm-hmm. if you're going to be an actor in a movie just be be present all the time like he expects you to be present and just be there and there is no just like I mean like Vigo he's in there I mean he, he, he's just his dick swinging around fighting a guy <laughs> twice his size not dick size, but like, well, maybe but, dick but, size. I, was, I don't know. I wasn't looking. I wasn't looking. <laughs> I, Point I, being is, he just asked you to be present. Well, I, just be there. I think that that's one of the real credits to these movies is um, 
the actors kind of have to be fearless because Cronenberg is not messing around. He's going to ask you to do some weird, strange stuff that's not conventional and in any way. And you got to go for it. You got to sell it. You got to be in. And that's, I think, another thing that he really. It's it's rare to see his movies and think like, wow, the actor just wasn't committed. No. And you know, if you're going to do a Cronenberg movie, I think he pushes you. But you're going to be in a solid, great, interesting film. Yeah. So agreed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys out there listening, we gave you some suggestions of stuff that maybe you've been putting off, and maybe you'll stop putting it off. Honestly, I'd say anybody, this list of films is worth going through. Maybe not like we did all in like a week. Yeah, uh, in Cronenberg a month is probably the best. Uh, <laughs> or maybe well, the guy's been making movies for almost forty years. Yeah, yeah. I had 80. some really interesting dreams. That's yeah, for sure. I bet. a I, lot of Cronenberg on top of each other. Don't don't like there are movies that are really weird and. You're like, great, I'm going to take some mushrooms or something with that. Cronenberg no. films are not that kind no. of movie. I think if you're a subscriber to this site, you should be watching David Cronenberg. Yeah. You are obviously who Cronenberg is. You're weird enough movie. already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's time to take it My to the next level. Not that she would walk in and go, oh, you're watching that sci-fi porn again? Oh, yeah. Sci-fi <laughs> porn? Because yeah. making lunch with all I'm like, all right, no. <laughs> if you like cheap jump scares and bad mythology, do not watch Cronenberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But otherwise... Watch Cronenberg, and we'll be back in another week with another episode of Deliberations of Doom, where we'll be ch- taking on first a review of the sequel to Stakeland, Stakeland Two, Stake Harder. Yeah, Stakelander. I think it was actually the sequel is actually called in other territories Stakelander. Yeah, Stakelander yeah. okay. instead of Stakeland Two, the Stakelandiest. Um, and then we will be talking about the phenomenon of the final girl in horror, which is a Woo-hoo. much debated upon thing in. Both from feminists and film critics, and all sorts of people, as to its relative merits or what would they have, demerits. <laughs> demerits. Demerits. Anyway, right. we'll see you back in a long. Week. Live uh, the new flesh. Long live the new flesh, and keep screaming. <laughs>